Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, come on all you hipsters, scenesters, coolsters, and cutesters. Don't let your lips grow moldy. It's SST 223, the Kirk Kelly Go Man Go record. Very cool to get into this. Um, I am not a folky. I'm not an anti-folky by any stretch. I, I do subscribe to the view that punk is a folk music. And uh, if you think that Kirk Kelly ain't punk, then you need to give your head a shake because this is a great record and really looking forward to getting into it. And Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Kirk Kelly's on the show. Yeah, very cool to have Kirk on. This is a really great companion episode to the Roger Manning episode, SST203. You really got to listen to these two together. What a treat. And uh, just a whole scene for us to dig into in this episode again. So really looking forward to that. Yeah. Before we do that, Brand, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Sure. I'll try and make this quick, Ryan, because it's actually a pretty long interview. So I, I, uh, I apologize for the length of my spiel here. But and Ryan, when you when you edit this episode, I'm wondering if you can make this next part sound kind of demonic. <laughs> okay. Do what you can with it. Okay. All right. Enter to the realm of comp Oh, nice. Maybe that sounded demonic enough on its own. I don't know. Where Where's that from? Enter to the realm of. That's from some song, right? That S- I know about. Slayer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> enter Enter into the realm of Satan. Is that the one? Of course. Is that off of like Rain and Blood or whatever? Of course. Okay. Yeah. I've never owned that record. I only had what? people. I only had people play it at me so i've never really gotten into that record but yeah but tell me about the comp zone this week okay uh i did this spoken word tribute album kerouac kicks joy darkness oh good one for this week yeah that's why i did it it's subtitled a spoken word tribute with music you ever heard of it no okay so it was assembled by jim sampas a, pr- a producer who is also the nephew of Jack Kerouac and the literary executor of his estate. It came out on Ryko Disc in 1997. Kind of ties in with this episode in the sense that Kerouac's work had a major influence on music in general. You know, mm-hmm. Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, Tom Waits, many other musicians, including Kurt Kelly, cite him as a, as a huge inspiration. Uh, Lee Ronaldo acted as associate producer on the album. So I'll try and get through this quick. Morphine, the band, kicks it off with kind of a jazzy track called Kerouac. So some of this, uh, most of this is Kerouac's actual pieces of writing, people reading, but some of it is their own kind of tributes to him. Like the next one, Lydia Lunch uh, does Bowery Blues. Uh, It's classic Lydia with that famous delivery of hers. So that yeah, this is one that's kind of inspired by his writing. Mm. The next one, uh, Michael Stipe's My Gang. Um, which he accompanies himself on a Vox Jaguar organ. That's what it says in the liner notes. Steven Tyler's piece is a highlight. Uh, Dream, us kids swim off a gray pier. Uh, And the backing track is him doing some kind of, you know, Steven Tyler scatting. Scat? Yeah. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Yep. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson reads a poem he wrote called Letter to William S. Burroughs and Ode to Jack, and it ends with him kind of talking about how Kerouac was one of his heroes. No surprise there. Uh, the next one is a highlight, Maggie Estep and The Spitters, and they do this track, Skid Row Wine. This this one has, you know, this track has ties to anti-folk. 
Although you wouldn't know it to hear it, Maggie's a spoken word artist who performed at many of the anti-hoots, and the Spitters were an offshoot of the notorious anarchist band Missing Foundation, who had connections to Roger Manning and were a big part of like the Tompkins Square riots. Uh, we talked about them on the Roger Manning episode. He he did some recordings with them as well. They have a few albums under the name The Spitters uh, that I just have to hear. I, I wish they would have done a full length with Maggie because this song just rules. Sonic Youth, Swans, Noise Rock with, you know, Lydia Lunch, Kim Gordon style spoken word on top. It's just bitching. The comedian Richard Lewis reads something of his called America's New Trinity of Love. Dean Brando Presley, and it's super cool. Beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti reads Kerouac, backed by Boston indie rock band Helium. Do you know Helium, Ryan? Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Kind of a Sonic Youth Breeders type of band. A couple cool albums on Matador. Okay, Ryan, here's where I, I thought maybe you'd heard of this. Jack Kerouac and Joe Strummer do a track on here. Oh, I don't know that. Yeah. Cool. It's a recording of Kerouac himself with a synth kind of drum machine backing track that Joe Strummer did. Yeah, I did not know that. I can, I can see why I may not seek that out to be a Joe Strummer completist if Joe is just accompanying it with a synthesizer. (laughs) Yeah, you don't need it. Uh, Allen Ginsberg reads an unpublished Kerouac piece called Brooklyn Bridge Blues. At least that's what he says. It's recorded live. Eddie Vedder, backed by his band Hovercraft. Kind oh, yeah. of experimental, noisy uh, track. It's really cool. William S. Burroughs, Reading Kerouac, backed by this duo, Tom and Andy. It's got a film noir feel, which is on point for what you'd expect from Burroughs. Juliana Hatfield, John Cale, both reading pieces with kind of sparse backing tracks. Johnny Depp, backed by the band Come. Uh, one of the better tracks, actually, called mm. Mad Road Driving. Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter, I think reading himself, but backed by a tape of Jack Kerouac kind of doing some scat singing. Lee Ronaldo has a cool one with a jazzy backing track featuring Dana Coley of Morphine on sax. Avant-garde Japanese artist Anna Domino. This trio, or this duo, Rob Buck and Danny Chauvin. Not sure who they are. But then a live reading of Patti Smith doing Kerouac and it's called The Last Hotel, backed by Thurston and Lenny Kay. Uh, it's not as chaotic as you might expect with you know, with Thurston being involved, but it's cool. Pianist Michael Wolf with Warren Zevon actually voicing Jack's words. Uh, Lee Ronaldo and Lenny Kay again on guitars, uh, backing Jim Carroll. And that's all recorded by Wharton Tears at Fun City, so some, some SS3 action there. Yeah. Uh, an absolute must here is Matt Dillon reading Mexican Loneliness backed by this jazzy film noir style track. It's so cool. And then of all people, Jeff Buckley and Inger Lore doing a track together. Interesting pairing. And then Eric Anderson ends it off with Brooklyn Bridge Blues. So this is a great comp to put on when you're chilling out and in the mood for something laid back, preferably late at night when it's raining. weather appropriate yeah real quick ryan uh i saw the cult this week yeah i've seen them once before this time blue the previous time just totally out of the water killer set list uh coming off the tour for sonic temple's 30th anniversary so they played six songs from that one 
five from electric including some deep deep cuts like aphrodisiac jacket and peace dog lobster telephone (laughs) ian asbury in just full shaman mode yeah billy duffy just the epitome of a rock god throwing shapes and peeling off note perfect solos like it was just nothing to it yeah yeah it was awesome man and I also saw the band Zombie. I've spoken about my my love for Zombie on the show before, and they just blew me away. Drummer A.E. Patera is just such a beast. Every single time he hits his drums, it's done with total conviction. And he had a roto tom up on his rack next to the you know the regular toms, and every time he hit it, it was like that roto tom was like the star of the show. <laughs> what made it so good? <laughs> it was just awesome. Just, just ro- a roto tom? Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, it was just perfect. I mean, how often do you see a, just a roto tom shine? Yeah. Yeah, I never see a roto tom <laughs> shine. That's amazing. Good one. Synth and bass player Steve Moore is just really unbelievable. Sometimes he was playing both at the same time. Mm. You know, Getty style. Nice. Those frequencies he gets on his synth, just cranked up through a PA at loud volumes, are just like you know make you nervous that you might shit your pants. <laughs> he was oh, he was playing this bass like an eight-string bass or something, you know, where the strings are super close together. Oh. Do you know what I mean? Well, I know on an eight-string there are, you know, two sets of four that are really close together. Yeah, I, don't, I, I don't know if that's what you mean. I guess that's what this is, yeah. Yeah. And then he was playing it through... It sounded like through an Octavizer or something like that. Uh, it was just sheer musical insanity. Go see Zombie and buy their records. It's just fucked, man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And you saw like two bands in the same week, hey? Yeah. Wow, that's rare. Yeah. <laughs> I I only saw two bands this summer. I saw Weird Al Yankovic and Propagandi. Yeah. So, you know, you got me beat if you saw two bands in one week. I really wanted to go see my friend Scott's band. Ken Mode, they played last night, but it was just too late for me. I couldn't do it. But their new al- album's wicked. If you haven't heard that, Ryan, you're going to love it. Ah, cool. Yeah. What do you have? I'm going to finish off my Wheel of Spiels. You don't get to spin it. I'm just going to finish it off. This mm-hmm. is all the uh, the backlog from the summer. I want to get this uh, kind of on the record so I can get on to uh, my other spiels that are in the queue, which I'm, I'm pumped to tell you about. So the first one I'm going to do is Books. Some of these we already spoke about, but uh, or mentioned along the way. But I'm just going to rattle them off so people know about these and um, how they need to check them out. Last week you were alluding to this new book that's coming out called "The Longest Suicide: An Authorized Biography of Art Bergman." This is out September 30th on Anvil Press. This is written by Jason Schneider. He's one of the people who co-wrote the absolute authority on Canadian indie rock and punk called Have Not Been the Same, the Can Rock Renaissance, 85 to 95. This is about Art Bergman, and he's kind of like, you know, one of the top four Canadian punk rock icons of all time, who also went on, you know, started off in the KTELs in the Young Canadians in that Vancouver scene, Los Populeros, but then he also turned into, you know, a real singer-songwriter, kind of, you know, like Canada's Paul Westerberg now and then, maybe, kind of. But kinda also anti-folk too, though. 
totally. So I really can't wait to read that. And Art is still, thankfully, putting out music, and it's great. Yeah. Another book that I saw has come out or is coming out right away called My Punk Rock Life, a photo book by Marla Watson. You can get this at mypunkrocklife.com. It's got pics of Misfits, Damned, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Channel 3, Circle Jerks, Bad Brains, DOA, TSOL, Aggression, Descendants. The list goes on and on and on. Mypunkrocklife.com. Check that book out. Greg Graffin has a book coming out. Punk Paradox, a memoir. Greg Graffin, of course, the lead singer for Bad Religion. This is out in November on Hatchet Books, which is uh, putting out some great stuff lately, not the least of which is Jim Rulin's last book. There's a new Raymond Pettibone collection out there called Point Break, Surfers and Waves. This is on David Zwerner books. This seems to collect a lot of the surfer-themed artwork that Raymond has been putting out um, as kind of this latter half of his career, maybe I could say. Um, he definitely has like a surfer period, and it's uh, definitely in the last 20 years or so. And there's been some smaller books, but this is the big one. This one has got, you know, the most in one spot. Point Break, Surfers, and Waves. Also, we mentioned last week that Raymond did the cover for the latest issue of Maggot Brain, and there's an interview with him in it. That's the Third Man Records magazine. But... Pettibone also does the cover for the rebooted print edition of Cream Magazine. He does the cover of that. Issue one, that's out now. Unfortunately, here I'm going to go on a bit of a Brant's rant. Unfortunately, $30 US to get a copy of that magazine shipped to Canada. So, sorry, not going to be getting the, you know, the print version of Cream Magazine. They're right up there now. If it's $30 US to send me a magazine, they're right up there with Rhino Warner for screwing up my replacements orders. And, uh, you know, I'll have to find it on eBay months later. Yeah. Anarchy at the Circle K. Jim Rulin tipped me onto this. He uh, posted about this book on one of his threads. It's subtitled On the Road with Dead Kennedys, TSOL, Flipper, Subhumans, and Heroin. This is on Punk Hostage Press, written by Patrick O'Neill, and it's a great read. And this is that book I was telling you about that has this blurb in it about how scorn flakes, uh. like like sabotaged Flipper at one, <laughs> one of their shows. Remember scorn flakes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you got to check out that book, man. Anarchy mm -hmm. at the Circle K. You'll love it. Uh, out on Hozak, this looks killer. It's a, it's kind of a photo book. Again, it's called Kill a Punk for Rock and Roll, 1976 to 2019. It's photographs by Marty Perez, a photographer from Chicago. Seems to really cover the intersection of rock and punk, how there was a bit of a clash of rock and punk in the early days, you know, where you'd have like, you know, long feathered haired dudes with stashes, you know, seeing punk shows and and vice versa and then it kind of gets into some of the indie scene it looks really cool on hozak i ordered that with my my order last time i i'm gonna love reading that one i know it i'm holding off on a hozak order because if you go on their site they've got some stuff coming out that just sounds unreal yeah you definitely got to save up for a hozak order yeah, well, we'll see. Like, then you run the risk of not getting it, though, because man, I don't, I don't know how many they press of, of each book, but oh yeah, they're sold out right away. Yeah, I know, I know. All right, more books. Buzz Osborne, 
has got a photo book out of his own called Rats. Not much info out there on this one, but I've seen some pictures of it online. I have not seen any information for how to order it. It looks like something they're only selling on tour. But, you know, if, if you read the latest issue of Maggot Brain, where there is a bit of a tour photo journal by Buzz Osborne in there, I suspect that his book Rats is somewhat similar to that. Also, speaking of Third Man Books, Needles and Plastic yeah. is coming out on Third Man Books. This is a, a book on the Flying Nun Records story, which, of course, is that landmark New Zealand label. This looks really, really cool. We've mentioned Flying Nun in the past about how we don't know enough about it, and here's a great opportunity to learn way more about it. Yeah, there's a couple books about Flying Nun that, I, that are on my on my massive list of <laughs> I've got a book's worth of books <laughs> oh, man. that I want to read, you know, it's, I don't know, man. You should write a coffee table book about books. There's not enough time. <laughs> so uh, many this, books, so little time. I know, I know. Well, there's hardly enough time to listen to everything too, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that one though, Needles and Plastic, written by Matthew Goody. Check that one out. Now, my final book I'm going to mention is not a new book. It's actually from 2017, but it's a segue into my next spiel, Watts on Bass. Okay. This book is called Vinyl Freak, Love Letters to a Dying Medium by John Corbett. As I said, it's not new. It's from 2017 on Duke University Press. It discusses more than 200 rare and out-of-print LPs. It's, it's really a compilation of Corbett's long-running Downbeat magazine column of the same name which was devoted to records that had not appeared on CD. Really rare records, not re-released, and it's called Vinyl Freak. I learned so much in reading this book. Just awesome. Great writing. Um, there's, there's like, you know, for each release, there's a picture of the album cover, and then you read just this, like, crazy story about this obscure release or obscure artist. I learned so much. It was great. And it's on the tree. Because it also mentions uh, two releases by Charles K. Noyes, The World of the Raw People from 1982 on Zor, and then also Free Mammals from 1979 on Visible Records. So it's on the tree. There's some cool stuff out there in this book. You got to check it out. But then there's also this amazing Mike Watt related story in this book. Huh. So at the end of the book, Corbett is getting into how he rescues some artifacts from Sun Ra's former manager's house who passes away. One day, Corbett gets this email that says, you know, the, the reline or the subject line, it says, emergency, Sun Ra's home in peril. It had been forwarded twice by the time he got it, once from Mike Watt. And he says, you know, bassist of Firehose and Minutemen. It came from Mike Watt to this acquaintance of Corbett. It found its way then to Corbett, who knew this acquaintance of Corbett, knew of his obsession with Sun Ra, forwarded it to him. Again, kind of originating in Mike Watt's world, it seems. But then it talks about this archaeological excavation of Sun Ra's manager's house, Alton Abraham. So cool. He pulled out all of this, like one of a kind artwork and artifacts and robes and mystical items, you know. Wow. Um, but it was just, it's great about how, you know, Mike Watt, he caught wind that Sun Ra's house and artifacts would be on peril. And he's just forward in that email around the world, right? To get people to help save Sun Ra's house. It's awesome. 
so and then that's the segue into my final spiel watts on base here we go so we're talking about mike and the first thing um i want to mention is a couple of discoveries that i made that mike is either related to or plays on and the first one is a release by this band called the widow babies cool and name and yeah and it's called the mike watt ep it's on cd it's from march 2008 there's a song on it called Mike Watt created the universe with a bass solo. There's a picture of Mike Watt on the cover. It's five songs. It's kind of bashy indie rock, obviously paying tribute to Mike, kind of screechy, shouty vocals. It's cool. It's actually like a concept EP about Mike Watt fighting a vampire, Abe Lincoln. Watt actually played the entirety of this EP on the episode of the Watt from Pedro show in 2008 it's the october 19th episode of 2008 on watt from pedro you can go back and listen to it he calls it a mini opera the cd of course watt does and it's about him you know killing a vampire abe lincoln definitely check out this widow babies ep <laughs> okay <laughs> it's it's amazing yeah uh, another release i discovered with watt on it that's very cool called floored by four didn't know about this one and stumbled across it. This is Watt, Nels Klein, and then Yuka Honda from Sibo Mato on keyboard bass, and then Doug Bown on drums. It's instro improvisational. It's four tracks, all written by Watt, but each track is named after one of the members. So there's a track called Nels, one called Miss Yuka, one called Watt, and one called Dougie. You really should check out this Floored by Four record. I totally dug it mm. now when you're listening to what or when you're listening to a mini opera about what what do you need brant uh some mike watt hot sauce <laughs> you need some mike watt hot sauce you need watt sauce kevin channel is brewing up this hot sauce at el enojado e-l-e-n-o-j-a-d-o i am totally butchering how to spell that el enojado um and he basically uh, got together with Mike to create some Mike Watt hot sauce, and it's called Watt Sauce. And check out the spiel about this hot sauce. You will buzz and you will howl under the influence of heat with this fierce brew of roasted serranos, habaneros, ginger, muy ajos asados, that's roasted garlic, if you feel like a gringo, and fresh lime. You can get it at L enohado.com e-l-e-n-o-j-a-d-o.com i hit up kevin and i said dude this seems a little expensive to ship it into canada and he's like yeah totally man this uh auto calculator is not working let me hook you up and so kevin was totally responsive help me get a package here i've got a bottle for you and uh -huh. a bottle a bottle for me and some Mike Watt hot sauce stickers. No way. Way. <laughs> and then on the back, Kevin, what a cool dude, man. He goes, love the show. Enjoy the stuff. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Are you eating it or do you just put it on your shelf? Oh, no. I, this is yours. Yours is unopened here. Okay. Mine is upstairs and it's going all over my eggs this morning. For nice. Breakfast. Nice. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> no, I'll save the bottle. But I got to eat this uh, this tasty brew. How else am I going to buzz or howl under the influence of heat? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, man. So everyone should go 
uh, El Inahado and get some Watt sauce and all the other stuff that uh, Kevin is brewing up over there. And that's it, man. I've got a couple of wicked spiels to come, but uh, I want to get into some Kirk Kelly as well. Let's go, man, go. History lesson, part one. All right, as mentioned, folks really should go back and listen to our SST 203, the Roger Manning episode, because it's just a great accompaniment to this show. These two together, amazing story. So pleased that we get to cover this area of music, of history, this scene. Uh, Feel very privileged, very grateful to do that. And, you know, it's all about how the old guard at Greenwich Village was uh, not very accepting to some new guys kind of coming up and gals on the scene. And so they created their own scene, man. Totally punk rock. Yeah, I'll just do a quick recap, Ryan. So both, you know, Roger and Kirk were definitely stars of the movement. So pretty cool that SST had both of them, you know? Yeah. Anti-folk was formulated in the mid-80s by a group of young songwriters who were rebelling against the entrenched New York folk scene It was first headquartered in scene leader Latch's Remington Street apartment, but it moved around to a a variety of East Village bars. Eventually, Latch was asked to bring his scene to the Sidewalk Cafe, where it settled in for its longest run. Uh, This was a few years later, though, you know, around 93, but it was going for a while. It's still, you know, anti-folk is still, you know, a thing for sure. Here's Latch from an article I found. The scene started when I finally had my fill of the West Village folk scene in the early 80s. I moved to the Lower East Side and I opened up a club on Rivington Street between Clinton and Suffolk in a loft space that I'd gutted. I would sleep on the stage during the day and then I'd open up the club at night like around midnight and we'd stay open until like 12 in the afternoon the next day. It was a completely illegal after-hours bar and it was originally called The Hidden Fortress but it quickly became known as the Fort. That's where Anti-Folk was born. Around the same time that I opened up the Fort, the West Village was having the New York Folk Festival. I didn't feel as if anybody playing was actually a folk musician. They were singer-songwriters with guitars. So I decided, well, if they're going to call themselves folk, we're going to call ourselves Anti-Folk, and we'll have the Anti-Folk Festival. Instead of the Hoot Nanny, we'll have the Anti-Hoot, And that's how it all started, with fellow misfits like Cindy Lee Berryhill, Kurt Kelly, Roger Manning, and Billy Nova. I'm sure I mentioned this in the Roger Manning episode. In fact, I know I did. But there's a great comp from this the later Sidewalk era in the 90s called Latch's Anti-Hoot, live from the fort at Sidewalk Cafe. Really should check that out. Uh, And there's an amazing comp that I've tracked down since Roger's episode that's a bit tougher to find called the broom closet anti-folk sessions it came out in 1989 on steve gabe's 109 records a short-lived new york anti-folk label it was really focused on that scene anyways we talked about 109 records on the roger manning episode they released his joe folk and the soho valley boys album uh, the broom closet was roger's studio so i assume that's where the all of this record was recorded uh, Kirk has an amazing song on, on the comp called New City. Cindy Lee Berryhill, Roger Manning, Billy Syndrome, Pale Face, some amazing and hilarious spoken word stuff from John S. Hall. It, it's a really great comp, so check that out if you can track it down. There's kind of, you know, if you're Googling around anti-folk, you'll see a lot of stuff about the later stuff. 
you know, or the later artists like, you know, Beck and Regina Spector and the Moldy Peaches and Kimmy A. Dawson. But to me, it's this, this early scene that's, that's super interesting. Uh, Kirk and I get into a lot of the history and fill in some of the, the holes from episode two of 203. But I think if, like you said, if you listen to our conversation with Roger and then now with Kirk, you'll have a pretty good picture of what the whole anti-folk movement at, at the start was all about. Yeah. Should we throw it over to Kirk? Yeah, man. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Kirk Kelly. Kirk, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Now, uh, are you originally from New York? Yeah, well, tri-state area. Like, I mostly grew up in uh, in the suburbs. Uh, you know, I'm, my family's been here for five generations. So, mm-hmm. I actually right now live in the same parish my grandfather got baptized in. Oh, okay. Which is uh, the heart of the East Village, where the whole anti-folk scene happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, musical family? Actually, no. Um, well, my grandfather, like, played instruments with strings on it and you know i kind of had a tradition where there always had to be somebody to sing you know yeah so i i had i kind of inherited that and they, they gave me guitar lessons so you know i i we both played at all the family functions until eventually it was just me so okay. i still do what's the what's the first music that you remember getting into oh well it would have to be the beatles yeah because I was still, you know, I, I was like, you know, maybe like just barely able to remember, you know, what was probably one of my earliest memories. But my, my older brothers were all into it. It was all the rage. And they had a Beatles club. And, uh, you know, we just thought they were the coolest thing. And uh, we, we'd have like, we used like vacuum cleaner for like a microphone, you know, like the stand-up vacuum. Right. And tennis rackets for guitars. And we played our records and do the, the Beatles, <laughs> the Beatles songs. Yeah. No, but that was, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and then I, I remember uh, I, I knew all the words to, like, the songs because they had all the albums, and I actually, when I stood on the, my first performance, I stood on the checkout counter at Black's and sang, she was just 17, and you know what I mean. <laughs> you know? So uh, how old would you have been when you started playing guitar? Um, I would have been in, in fourth grade, so I guess, like, eight, nine, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess nine years old. Okay. And uh, I took, uh, they had lessons at our school, so we had a, a class, a group class taught by a nun. As your musical tastes expanded, uh, like how soon did you get into folk music or, you know, folk artists? Well, I pretty much right away because, um, actually, I just, you know, the day I got the first album that I actually bought or had bought from you, so we went to Woolworths and, uh, you know, my brothers, of course, got the latest Beatles album, and I had seen uh, Louis Armstrong on the Ed Sullivan show, so I, he was my favorite. So I got Hello, Dolly by Louis Armstrong, and then we had to buy one from my dad, and, and we got him a Clancy Brothers album, which, um, you know, in Irish America, they were like, you know, the, the icons of, of folk music and Irish music. So that was like really my first... Uh, introduction to Irish music and you know, even like Irish history too, and the history of Irish struggle. What about later on when you got into high school? Were you were you into like Led Zeppelin and stuff like that? And then you came back to folk, you know, later on, or was was acoustic based music kind of your singer songwriter stuff kind of your your thing all along? 
Yeah, well, I guess, uh, you know, I, I was like like most of the people in my generation or from our scene, you know, I was very into Dylan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and well, actually, because my, my grandma's graduation, my brothers bought me Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits, volume two, and or volume one, and uh, they said, you'll like this guy. He used to hang out with the Clancy brothers. <laughs> so, so that's how I got into Dylan, and then through Dylan, I, um, you know, I started reading about him, and I... I got into all the other people. And and actually, you know, I I had vague um, awareness of Woody Guthrie, but it wasn't, it was probably through reading about Dylan that I really got into Woody Guthrie. And then, uh, and then also Phil Oaks. So um, Phil Oaks was another icon of of, uh, part of the punk scene and and the uh, the anti-folk scene. Yeah. Uh what about writing music or writing your own songs? When do you do you know how old you would have been when you first thought you might want to try that? Oh uh, yeah, actually, I mean it was very sporadic. But the first song I wrote was in fifth grade because my my best friend died, mm. so um, I, I wrote a ballad about that. And then uh, and I actually found I don't know if I still have, but I remember finding it years later because my mom had saved it. It was written on loose leaf paper, and then. Uh, I remember going through songbooks. It must have been like maybe, you know, like early teens and, and reading songbooks and having this very, you know, serious disclaimer on the bottom say that you cannot play these songs without permission. <laughs> so uh, so I said, oh, man, I'll, I'll have to write some. So I wrote a, a song, which was probably the only like good song that I would still use uh, from that period of, about Nathan Hale. So that, uh, that was one of the earliest songs I wrote. And then uh, later on in high school, I, you know, my or first year of college, my high school sweetheart broke up with me and I wrote some really bad songs about that. Yeah. So it wasn't really until, um, oh, and then in, in college, you know, I was getting gigs playing cover songs, but I was also studying a lot of, uh, I was um, in literature courses. So I, I studied a lot of poetry and, and so I was, I went through this, maybe junior, senior year, I, I started writing again, uh, seriously. Mm-hmm. Always just playing solo acoustic, or did you ever have a band during this period? Oh, well, uh, my senior year in high school, and the summer after that, I had a, I was in a bluegrass band. Mm. So I, I was really into bluegrass then also, and uh and it was funny. It would be years before I got into the punk scene, but we would go down, and and there was a uh, this one one night a week in the, the local college where I would end up going. Um, there was a my friend's guitar teacher played in a bluegrass band, and we would uh, we we cutting up, and and you know we were actually I didn't realize it until uh, I would see like clips from punk shows and stuff that we were actually like slam dancing. But we <laughs> we would do that to to bluegrass. And then my senior year, I got a, uh, at the end of my senior year, I got a banjo for my birthday. So mm. before I even started to learn how to play it, they said, oh, we have a band now. You're the banjo player. Oh, and then we we were kind of like ahead of the time. Like, you know, the only, the only band I could really uh, associate with what I, we were doing then was, was years later when the Pogues came out. But we... We combined bluegrass and Irish songs and, and just everything else we listened to and Dylan and, and 70s, uh, you know, folk-influenced rock. And um, we had a gig at the local bar where we hung out and 
$10 a piece and all we could drink. Um, that was my first band. Oh, actually, if you, if you don't count the, uh, we put a similar type band together for, uh, uh, the, the homecoming pep rally senior year. It was just, but that was all kids from my class. And I do remember though, we did a cover of, uh, the story of the hurricane by Bob Dylan about Reuben Hurricane Carter. Yeah. And all, yeah, I went to a Catholic school. So like all the brothers were not very pleased <laughs> about our, our selection, but all the kids in the class were like, yeah. <laughs> so a little bit of a rebellion there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but one, you know, probably which was not repeated until I, I discovered punk. Yeah. Okay. So when you say punk, I mean, that could mean a lot of things. I mean, New York City had really ran the gamut as far as punk bands go. What? Tell me, name some bands. Like, who would you have been going to see? Well, actually, I didn't, and first I didn't go to see many because I was, uh, it was really in college that I, I was really, uh, um, I took it seriously. Uh, so I remember in uh, in high school, all this stuff was going on with the Sex Pistols and Sid and Nancy, and like we just thought punk was like the, the uh, totally ridiculous. You know, all we knew was the sensationalized stuff, and yeah. and uh, you know it was like a big joke to us. And then when I when I was in college, I had this one sweetmate who uh, he was already been through the Coast Guard. He was from Vermont, and uh, he would stay sit in his room listening to punk flipping through his baseball cards, and uh, I remember one night he's playing the Sex Pistols, and like I'm listening, to God Save the Queen comes on, I'm like, holy crap, this is the Clancy Brothers, you know, <laughs> this is protest music. I, I, I gotta, I gotta get into this, you know, and you know from there I totally got into the Clash and the Ramones, and then uh, you know when I I came to the city after I graduated. You know, I was really just looking to be a singer-songwriter, you know, like like most of us showed up on the Greenwich Village folk scene, and, uh, you know, that's where I met all, all the malcontents that had such an impact on me. And, and and at the same time, though, we're, you know, Greenwich Village is on the west side, and, you know, we all pretty much lived on the east side and the lower east side in Alphabet City. And that's where all the stuff that we would eventually gravitate to was going on. So after a while, just being this disrespected and just pretty much ignored, we we just like, well, why walk all the way over there every Monday night? And we just started doing it. And back in those days, um, you know, no nobody wanted to live here. You couldn't get out of the neighborhood fast enough unless you were into the the punk scene. And, or, you know, the, the, the people like... Um, you know, the, the neighborhood people that were here for economic reasons. So, uh, so there, there was like vacant storefront after vacant storefront. And, you know, if you save up two paychecks, minimum wage, you can open a storefront and call it a club and nobody, you know, the, the crime was so ridiculous and the cops had so much else to worry about. But, so nobody, you pretty much did whatever you want. And it was such an incubator. Mm-hmm. So, um, a lot of the bands that I actually went to see, you know, then would, would be ones that people probably never heard of. Like, um, you know, oh, you had mentioned, uh, I think you mentioned Jason Goodrow on, on, uh, Rogers interview, but he was in a band called Banshee Strip Death. I remember those. I used to like them a lot. Oh, uh, oh, I was into, uh, and this was kind of like a whole connection with, it's probably like the earliest connection that led us to SST, but, um, 
a couple of friends of mine from, uh, including Latch, were from Rockland County, and there was like a, a kind of a rock scene up there. And I think that's where Dougie Holland was from. And Dougie played in, uh, well, originally in a band called Kraut, mm-hmm. a hardcore band. So we, uh, you know, we loved Kraut. So I'd go to all their shows. Well, you know, ones ones in the neighborhood. And uh, and then he later uh, became part of the Cro-Mags. And then there was just uh, other bands. The, the great thing about being downtown at that time is just you didn't, you didn't really worry about or, or follow bands like consistently because every time you walked out door, you at your door you would see something incredible. Right. So whether it was a band or some other sort of performance art or some other writing or art, you know, it, it was just I, I describe it to people as going to grad school. And back then it was before this gentrification really hit, so it was all contained in this small area. You know, and we used to call it the campus. So, um, so there's a lot of, a lot of like punk and really, by that time you were probably called post-punk New York, um, were bands I listened to that you, most people would not recognize the name of those bands. Uh, the fort gets talked about a lot. You mentioned Latch, um, you know, as kind of the scene when the scene coalesced, is that, is that how you see it? The, like the anti-folk movement? Yeah. Well, what happened is we, um, well, a lot of it really, you know, we were very like-minded people, you know, similar sensibility, you know, coming together, and, and it was just really exciting and really inspiring. And But at the time, Latch and I were the folk brothers. So I feel like the, the scene kind of, as it started getting an identity, like we just realized, hey, we're, we're different. There's something going on here. And, uh, you know, I when I look back, I think of the, the folk brothers as like a driving force about... Uh, of like the earliest anti-folk identity. That's a, a duo the two of you had together? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Latch and I, and uh, yeah, our, our, uh, our models, never mind his Sex Pistols, he's folk brothers. <laughs> uh, any recordings? Yeah, we did a cassette. Uh, it was, you know, probably maybe four or five songs, and it was called "No All Folked Up With Nowhere To Go. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, the cover was this picture that he had cut out from uh, 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 this donut package. And it was like, you know, uh, it was supposed to be, it was like a line drawing of like what was considered a cool party then, you know, guys like skinny pants and sunglasses, and, you know, navy jackets and stuff, you know. So that, that was that was the picture from the, the, the tape. The cassette tape was a big, uh, a big early entry point for a lot of, back then. I was going to ask, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've gotten some of these anti-folk comps and, you know, a lot of the bigger names like yourself, Roger, Cindy Lee, uh, Brenda Kahn, Paleface, etc., uh, you know, most got signed to indie or major labels, but there, for for every Paleface and Hamill on Trial, there's, there's so many uh, artists, especially on these comps, who went largely undocumented. I'm talking people like Tom Clark, uh, Jane Brody, Billy Nova, Susie Unger. Talk to me about cassette culture in the in the scene. Where would these would a lot of these folks have put out ca- their own cassettes? Yeah, I mean a lot a lot of it was just we made extra copies of our demo tape. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. so I I had one too, which was probably um, you know what 
Chuck and Greg had heard when, when they signed me to SSD. But also, um, and, but some of them went, you know, to, went through the trouble to make, make some interesting artwork and, and really run off a lot of tickets as well and, and, and do it as a release. But, you know, it was really, it kind of went along with uh, what was pretty much word of mouth culture. And occasionally, um, you know, you had mentioned one of them, but uh, uh, this girl, Kristen Johnson, put out a, a fanzine called Exposure. Right. So, you know, it was back in the day before websites. It was like everything was either Xeroxed or mimeographed. But uh, mimeographs were pretty much rare by that that time. But, uh, you know, it was all, they, you'd Xerox these things. And, and there was, um, but it was actually the Lower East Side had also its own, it had its own legitimate press. So there, there was a, a newspaper called East Village Eye, which was um, kind of like the, you know, the the rebellious younger brother of the Village Voice, and and it, it was really just focused on what went on in the East Village and the Lower East Side, and it kind of uh, took off during the punk scene. But you know, it was still around when we got here, and it was. Um, you know, it's, it's something you made sure you picked up every week. Mm-hmm. And then also there was, uh, around that time, they started a new, a new newspaper called Paper, which became a pretty big magazine. And the, uh, the guy who became the editor, or, or I think he was one of the guys who launched it, was Steve Blush. Mm-hmm. And I, I still have, like, an old uh, early review of the Folk Brothers from that. Just, it was just, like, a couple paragraphs, you know, included in, in a review of a bunch of other things. But it's... Uh, that was like the legitimate press at that time, but then there was just it was always zines that that people put out themselves. And then there's also Maximum Rock and Roll, but um, I, I never recalled it really embracing the anti-folk scene that much. Even when Roger and I were on SST, I don't I don't recall ever seeing a, a review of of my SST album and, hmm. there. And I you know, and I, I think it's just such a great and important magazine. It was a little disappointing. But yeah, still. especially since the politics probably aligned as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. What about some of the, you know, the more spoken word, you know, the beat poet influence type stuff like, uh, you know, Maggie Estep and, and, and John Hall? How, how much of that was, was, was going on as well and an and influence on the, on the singer-songwriters? Well, I mean, we're all pretty much part of the same team, same uh, scene, and... Yeah, you know, when you talk about anti folk, you're really kind of just talking about, um, you know, the the musical part of that scene. But um, you know, and then like I, I include John S. Hall as as anti folk because he was before he hooked up with King Missile, he was you know he played all the gigs with us. You know, he sometimes he'd just read, you know, just do his spoken word. Sometimes he, uh, you know, he had this duo with Roger Manning briefly. And, um, so that was really, since we were all, they, we were all inspired by a lot of the same things. Cause it's all, you know, like, like you, you've heard before, but the, the whole beat scene was such a big influence on us. So, yeah. uh, just going, uh, seeing really good spoken word was, you know, of course, anti-folk was all about the word. So. They they were just pretty much considered part of the scene, and um, you know, and a few of them I think were just they were included on compilations with us, and yeah, yeah. Um, 
it was uh yeah it was really you know it was part of really what made the scene special like different from others that had preceded it mm -hmm. yeah i mean the scene was definitely super eclectic it, you know more of a like punk more of a, an attitude and a, a frame of mind and not yeah. just about the style of music that you're playing i think for sure yeah, I mean that's also something that uh, that drew us to the punk scene because we uh, and and the whole post-punk scene that was going on at at the time because we would after we just really gave up on the village folk scene we you know we would uh, we would play at clubs and you know most of us were still you know either duo or solo at that time and we you know they they'd announce us and we'd go out and and. Uh, play like a really short set in between hardcore bands and, or, be, you know, open up for them. And, you know, the punks were like, if they liked you, they let you know. They were yeah. open-minded, you know, so yeah. there was a good chance they would like you. But if, if they didn't like you, just like all the other punk bands, they told you to fuck off and sometimes they throw things, you know. It, it was like, it was never, the gigs were never boring. Yeah. In your experience, personal experience, like how legit was this "Quote unquote ban from you know Folk City and the Speakeasy and stuff like that." Oh well, I mean, um, you know, I don't. Well, in my own case, I don't even know if it was like the owner knew about it. It's just like some some doorman got pissed off and he's like, "You're a band," you know, mm -hmm. and he worked the door every week. So you know, and it was around that time that we had pretty much stopped going there. But it was it was it was symbolic. And um, a few weeks later, the uh, or not not it was a few weeks, but shortly after, uh, Folk City had closed. So oh, okay, so I wasn't actually at the closing night, but um, a lot of people were. And someone I know, I'm not going to say who, but I know who took the Phillips photo from the wall of Folk City. <laughs> okay, uh, if you were playing, you know, these more, I don't know establishment type of venues what kind of would you get a poor reaction from the from the audience no it was um mainly what i remember it would be very awkward you know they were because they were usually polite you know and like mm -hmm. oh that's the worst thing i'm like oh if, if you hate this tell, tell me tell me now yeah, you know yeah and it was just like whoa that, that that is like the worst thing i i would much prefer you know, opening for Agent Orange and, and all the fans, you know, telling me to die rather than uh, this, you know. Right. Okay. <laughs> Quietly hating you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and a lot of them didn't hate us, but, you know, uh, when you play bigger shows, but uh, they just didn't know what to make of it. Right. Yeah. Because I walk out with my guitar and, you know, I did, I usually had a leather jacket on then, but it was like, you know, um, you know, they didn't, you know, it, I, I probably had like the deepest folk music roots of, of the people on that scene. So mm -hmm. yeah. it was definitely a lot they could relate to, but it was just, they just felt like something was very off. There's something wrong here. You know, and it was usually, it was never like my own, I wasn't headlining in any of those clubs. I would be opening up for them. Like I, I did a few gigs in the Midwest with, with Dave Bromberg, who was one of my absolute favorites growing up. But it was, uh, you know, it's definitely that kind of a crowd. And, and uh, you know, where, whereas uh, Michelle Schacht, like, she was kind of part of that scene. Like, she would go down to the folk festivals and, 
whereas I, I had pretty much given up on anything like that. And, uh, you know, so they, they were a little bit warm. He responded a little bit more warmly to her than, uh, you know, than to any of us. And also, um, uh, you know, she had some very early success, so helped people maybe made her a little bit more accessible. Right. Yeah. You were dating Cindy Lee Barry Hill for a while during this time. I read somewhere that she coined the term anti-folk and it was possibly a play on the, the LA venue, the anti-club. Do you, do you recall any of that? Oh yeah. Well, I recall that's the first time I heard the term anti-folk and, uh, we, we were in front of folk city. We're all waiting for the, it's like late summer afternoon, you know, maybe like six, between six and seven. And that LA, the light is at that time. And we're all waiting in line. And there was this little, um, uh, it was like a cellar entrance, you know, that was closed, and somebody had put a velvet rope in front of it. So Latch and I just thought, oh, that's, this is going to be our, we're going to do our performance right here. So we started playing, and of course there's a crowd there. And then this, this was, you know, one of Cindy Lee's first nights in town. She had took the, booked the bus across country and, and got off at the Port Authority, came down to Folk City, and, uh, you know, and, and she saw, you know, so we're, we're all talking, like, waiting, you know, waiting for them to open up. And so, you know, we figured out pretty early on that she, you know, we, we all connected right away. And then when we started playing, she was like, wow, it's like anti-folk. So um, I I don't know if it was specifically, you know, from the anti-club, because she, she was part of the whole L.A. punk scene and, uh, you know, had that sensibility. But then I... When I went to LA and I, I actually played at the Anti Club, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is, I, I can see it." <laughs> I, I also read somewhere that she possibly helped make the introduction to SST. Actually, I think uh, it was what had uh, oh what I mentioned before. If you go back to uh, Latch and. Uh, he had a band called what was it? Um, oh, proper, proper id. Mm, and right, then yeah. uh, there was another guy, Steve Araja, who was in a band called Borscht. And they they had that. They're still like people are still buying Borscht records. They're still they they were great, a lot of fun. And then uh, you know, and they were friends with Dougie. And uh, when I met Dougie, he was dating this girl from L.A. Um, and her sister, uh, her name was Heather, and her sister Linda, Linda Trudnich, worked mm-hmm. at SSD. Right, yeah. Or did by the time I had moved out there. So um, it's possible that, um, you know, I, I think that was, because um, when, when they had come to New York, all of, uh, you know, they just, you know, meshed with the whole scene and, and they, they became part of it really fast. And, the one I mentioned before, Kristen, like when she was working with Roger, she had she had made that connection. So I think uh, that was a bit that's what got her in the door at SST. And then once Linda heard that uh, they were signing Roger, she's like, "Oh wait, you know, you can't sign Roger if you don't sign this guy." You know. <laughs> so I think that that was the you know my circuitous path to SST Records. Okay. Because and actually. I remember going out as to L.A. as the Folk Brothers and, you know, giving them a demo tape because 
uh, Linda was working there then and, and hanging out at their office for, you know, a little bit. But uh, for some reason, nothing really happened with the um, with the Folk Brothers tape. And uh, I always thought that's probably, they should have done that first, you know. If, uh, uh, or even after me and Roger recorded an album, I, I still think Folk Brothers would have been perfect for SST. Mm. But, uh, but yeah, the, the, the Folk Brothers album didn't go anywhere. Um, or the cassette, and and then uh, and then I guess you know, Kristen had a lot to do with getting in the, to pay attention to us, which you know, and she made the the connection out there, and then you know, then then we were in the door, and and Chuck and Greg were open minded enough to see, well, like wow, this is, you know, they because you just you're not just being exposed to the artist, you're, you're being exposed to this whole scene that's right, going yep, on, exactly, and, yeah. And you know, SST knows something about underground uh, counterculture scenes, so <laughs> they kind of invented one themselves. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, and well, and I mean, now they've got you know two of the the biggest names in the anti folk scene on their label. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was uh, just. Um, I, I probably would have been good if if just we explored that a little bit more, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. it's just the sense of the, the, the sound was so completely different, but the sensibility was so dead on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, so cheap to make these records too. I'm frankly yeah. surprised they didn't do more of them. Yeah. And the other thing too, which we didn't really exploit enough, but you know, we all opened for punk bands, you know, you just, you you know, it's so easy. There's a lot of times you have a band opening for another band. That's a big pain in the neck. For you know? sure. Yep. Setting up, breaking Dude. down, doing sound yeah. check. So I was like, yeah, we go out, we strum three chords. They're like, okay, let's go. Yeah. And then, you know, so it's like, you don't, there's no breakdown after we finish playing. And then, uh, you know, we're ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, I think the best thing would have been if, if they had me and Roger just be the opening act for an entire tour for one band. Yeah, and yeah. you know that just—it never happened. I, I think it really would have changed the trajectory if, if we did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody like the Meat Puppets or something like that—it would have been. Perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, by the time our record came out, it was Firehose. Right, was, right. Yeah. Well, I, and then you know, I I, I love Firehose. You know, I, I you know, I didn't have a lot of exposure to SST records before. You know, maybe you know, until like. Uh, I, I really became familiar with them when I moved to LA, but um, but I really fell in love with a lot, you know a bunch of those bands and, and what they were doing, <laughs> and, uh, and ma- mainly like the the fun and the you know the added the wise ass attitude they had. <laughs> okay, shifting gears a little bit, tell me your thoughts and kind of your explanation of the Tompkins Square riots. Oh well, yeah. I, I really think it was real estate driven, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is—I was actually at the beach that day, so. But uh, and it, it was also—I uh, think it was just kind of like uh, you know they wanted to give the uh, the riot squad some exercise, you know, because <laughs> it really it really was a police riot, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I say that because it's so easy just to blame the cops for everything, but it was like I mean. I mean, the cops don't decide where they get sent, and but you know they they have. But and actually, it was like a week before that. Uh, Cindy and I were walking through Cockin Square Park, and it was like this eerie quiet, and like there's some people like 
nursing bruises and like, you know, and, and somebody said, yeah, these bunch of cops just came in and started swinging at everybody and clearing everyone out, you know, and it, it only lasted like 15 minutes, but it was like, it was like a warm up for the next week when they had the real riot. And then I'd like to do some research and find out how many, um, cops they actually sent down to them. There was no, no incident and it wasn't a response to anything. You know, one thing I did notice, there was always, like, a bunch of, like, yippies and, and really, like, you know, hippies and radical baby boomers that really wanted to keep the fight going. So whenever there was, like, more than two or three cops gathered, they would, they would always be trying to engage them. But, uh, you know, there was there was really no reason for the top of the square riot. But um, you, you were reaching this period when, uh, you know, like I said before, when we moved in and for, like, a decade before that, people couldn't get out fast enough. And what was happening was uh, people were moving out and the uh, landlords, you know, were just abandoned buildings so they weren't producing tax revenue. So for a while, they um, they had this urban homesteading program which enabled people to legitimately squat. And then also there was just all sorts of, you know, just unauthorized squats, just everywhere, every one of, you know, everywhere there was one of these abandoned buildings. So it was hard, whether it was legitimate or not, because you're competing with with junkies and, and uh, drug dealers and just everybody who wants to use that space themselves. And, and it was really hard. So, but, you know, it, it gave, it was a real foothold. It was a real important part of the scene because it gave some artists that are not recognized a, a place to live rent free. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then as it was pretty, I think it was a result of just the attention that all the artists and everything, the whole scene that, and community we had built there started getting attention and getting written up in the New York times and, and, you know, it's starting to become a destination that, uh, the real estate industry, uh, discovered it, rediscovered it and decided, Oh yeah, no, no, we want it. And then shortly after, uh, the whole attitude of the city changed and, and, uh, was, uh, you know, the people were getting evicted from the squats, and uh, you know, and I think that that um, that the Tonkin Square riot was was one of one of the, uh, the it was kind of like the launch pad because after that it was routine to see not not a, a, as large of a contingent, but contingents of cops and riot gear going to uh, whatever uh, community garden or or a squat or something just evicting. Whoever had, had taken possession of it, so um, you know. And also, aside from just the value of the real estate, it was the real value of our community. Because one thing in a, in a community like that, it's like, well, artists control. You know, artists control the message. Right. Artists, you know, we control who got attention. You know, we it was like every establishment interest was absolutely opposed to, you know, just by nature to what was happening in, in the Lower East Side at that time. And of course, you know, you know, the, a lot of the uh, attitudes were, were fairly radical. It, it was a, it was just a, a laboratory of real uh, progressive thought. And, uh, you know, cause, and also there was, aside from all the creative activity, there was political activity. And it was... Uh, I, I saw the Tonkin Square riot as, as like the beginning of the end. It was really, it's kind of like the Paris Commune, you know? It's, it's like, yeah, no, we, we can't let these people exist like this. <laughs> so now there's been this diaspora, and, and, you know, a lot of those attitudes, people still come 
to the city every day and bringing their, you know, their progressive ideas and their attitudes, but they'll settle in one of like half a dozen neighborhoods, which are always moving. You know, there was a real, nobody's ever, you know, documented it or gone on record as saying why, why we did this. But I mean, for me, I look at it and also I remember afterwards, like all this press would come down and somebody from the San Francisco, I don't, I don't know, it was the, the examiner or uh, one, one of the daily newspapers in, in San Francisco. But I remember telling him, yeah, my, my ancestors got, were getting beat up <laughs> in this exact park during the, the mass meetings over organizing unions, you know, right. it's, uh, it's like, wow, I think things haven't changed in a hundred years. Yep. Uh, well, what the establishment doesn't like hasn't changed either, you know? Yeah. You I know. mean, it also parallels a lot of what's going on now. It's it's like, they don't want, you know, like, you know, we, we talked a little bit about our, you know, our union affiliations, but it's mm-hmm. like a union is all about having a voice. Right. That's why people with, you know, more power than an individual don't like it. And this this community was all about having a voice. People came here, yeah, it was a chance to do your art, and, but also it's like, yeah, the, we, we define the culture. You know, and by defining the culture, you define identity, you define message, you define so much, and it just infuriated so many people that <laughs> uh, we could live you know, on our own terms. Like, no, you're supposed to live on the establishment's terms. Right, right. And I don't really consider myself an anti-establishment guy. I mean, I like, you know, I like a lot about but, you know, I, I was always like a work hard and get ahead kind of guy. But just, you know, it, it, one thing that amazed me from, or amazed me about the whole time and experience, and which was often, often reconfirmed later on, is just how threatened people are by a new idea, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the group Patty on the Railway. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, I started, oh, so I was, um, you know, you know, I've been through the mill so many times and done so many things and just got kicked in the teeth and like, you know, there's, but one thing is like in New York, they had a pretty vibrant, you know, live music scene and, and even just, you know, their own, you know, Irish American, particularly Irish New York has its own media, you know, its own newspaper. We had like two or three weekly newspapers, uh, you know, so and all these bars had, uh, they at least have a guy with a guitar playing and then, but, you know, usually they'd be, uh, uh, you know, they'd have a combo or a trio or something. And and then, uh, and also it was around this time, the early 90s, that the, the band Black 47 started getting noticed. So uh, I saw it as a way, well, I could actually do the band thing and actually pay the musicians <laughs> if I did it in somehow in a way that, that would uh, have some appeal to, to the Irish bar crowd. Because it's not like they're not, you know, the that crowd is not going out looking for progressive new music, you know, mm-hmm. they're just going out to hear, but they do respond to good music if it's good, no matter if they've never heard it before. So I was getting this together. And originally I, I had intended on using a Boron, you know, that Irish drum uh, in, uh, for my percussion. And I was talking to Brian Ritchie from the Femmes about it. And he said, well, it's the first time I had ever heard about this instrument. And now everyone has it. But he was like, Oh yeah, I was in South America. I found this thing called the cajon, and uh, so it's that box, that plywood box, right. and then it has, uh, and it also has like springs on the inside. So it's kind of like a uh, a floor tom and a snare at the same time. 
<laughs> like, oh, this is great. So he was like, and that Brian, like he, first of all, he sees an instrument, he can play it no matter what it is. And then like, and then if it's something new, he'll get really excited about it. So he was like, oh yeah. So I, I got him to play with my band while he was still in New York. And it was funny when we do like these Irish, you know, these Irish bars where like nobody really had any idea who he was. Like they've, most of them heard of the Violent Femmes and liked them, but they, they would have no idea that this was Brian, you know? And, and plus he wasn't playing bass in my band. He was playing percussion. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we, we had some interesting, uh, interesting gigs, but, uh, that's how that came together. And that's how that sound came together. And, uh, we did record some stuff that we actually never got released. And mm-hmm. I'm, thinking about releasing it now because i think that it's i think it's necessary now yeah that'd be so cool and uh, uh yeah I really, I really feel like i have i gotta reach my own community because we've lost a lot of them to the dark side so uh i want to see if i could use that as a vehicle again uh but brian ended up moving to uh tasmania so um i kept the band going with you know with other percussion for a while but brian was the original percussion oh and and uh the bass was uh malachi di lorenzo who was the son of the femme's original drummer oh okay so that that was us we were uh that, that was the trio was the original patty on the railway and I, I i i picked that name because it was a derogatory term so i i think it was like our version of nigger with attitude you know so right, right. it's like yeah and maybe people could understand it the same way it's like you know like the Irish always were uh, were good about embracing the uh, disparaging labels, so and and caricatures. It's like, oh yeah, that's us. We like, yeah, we we like to drink, we like to fight, you know, within reason, you know. But uh, you know, yeah, you just look at the the, the logo for Notre Dame, or, you know, uh, the Fighting Irish. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, of course, even today, I still think people take it to the extreme, and they're still like this. Um, undercurrent of there's always resentment of any culture that just maintains its own separate identity. So mm-hmm. I think uh, I it's still I, I I really feel like I would would get some of that. It was really subtle and unspoken, but it was um, you know from from of all places from within the liberal community. So um, but that was uh, you know that that's how Patty and Raleigh formed, and that was really where our sound came from and. Um, and where we were going with it. Okay. Uh, how did it come to be that Brian produced your, your record? Oh, well, we, uh, cause I, you know, it was amazing because, oh, you know, then and now the stems were just my absolute favorite band ever. And, uh, you know, they were so much of what we were all about, you know? And, uh, so, you know, I talked to, um, I talked to Greg Ging on the phone and he's like, yeah, you know, we're really interested in doing something. So why don't you come to the office and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, putting something out and I'm like, oh, all right. So I go to the office and, uh, I'm sitting in the waiting room and there's a kid working the desk and he starts, uh, asks, oh, so who do you like? And, you know, I told him, uh, I start talking about the fans. like, oh, did you know Brian Richard recorded an album for us? I'm like, well, I had no idea. So, uh, but now, now I had a big idea. Well, you know, cause I wasn't sure what I was, how I was going to make this album because, you know, it's not like with a, with a band, you all chip in money and, and you pay for, you know, it still costs just as much for a studio if you record one 
person or record four. Maybe it takes a little longer for mixing and stuff, but um, and and tracks. But basically, you don't save a lot by doing it yourself. And unless you do what Roger Manning did and just build your own studio. Right. So he tells me this. I'm like, oh man. And I I think I had known that. Uh, I think I had read somewhere that they were uh, that Brian was in you know very, a big Phillips fan. So. I'm like, oh man, that would be so great if he could produce my album. So then I go and I meet with them in their office, and they're like, yeah, you know. Oh, actually, no, we we met briefly, and then we went out to lunch with uh, with Greg and Chuck Bukowski. And I said, yeah, but you know, what I'd really like to do is have Brian produce this album. So they're like, oh, that would be a great idea. And because of that, I I got a budget, which they they never gave anyone a budget from what I heard. <laughs> so uh, I, so I got three thousand dollars. And uh, so the way back, I had booked this like cross country bus tour, you know, doing gigs here and there. And, and I was coming back through the northern part of the country. So I was going through Milwaukee. And, uh, um, you know, it turns out Brian was, was at home then. He was still living in Milwaukee and, and, you know, he wasn't on the road or anything. So he's like, oh, yeah, well, call him. You can meet him when you go to Milwaukee. I'm like, all right. So uh, I hung out at his, uh, at his flat for a few days, you know, and uh, he was really into it. And then, um, the drummer, uh, Malachi DiLorenzo, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Victor, Victor DiLorenzo had just opened a studio in Milwaukee. So like, all right, we'll record it there. So, ah. uh, we, we recorded at the, the studio in Milwaukee and then except for one song we did live, um, all the way Joe and that we did at a place called Harpo's, you know, so we could record the, the audience mm-hmm. reaction. But, um, but that's how that came about. And then, you know, I, I had no idea that the, the Femmes were like so generous and like they, they really helped out all their friends and like all their friends opened up for them. And so, uh, it's not only did I get to produce my album, but then I, I, I ended up doing a whole bunch of opening gigs for the Femmes, mm. which is always fun. Yeah, I bet. Uh, let's talk about these tracks a little bit on this record, if that's okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first track, Go Man Go, kind of the, you know, the rally cry of the, of the movement. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about Dylan comparisons. I'm I'm asking specifically because you know the the harmonica playing is, is Dylan esque for sure, and I and I also noticed your publishing company is Rambling Woody Zimmerman <laughs> Publishing, which is yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, but I was but it, it was also poking fun at the whole folk scene, you know, because they're all about that whole rambling kind of thing, and you yeah. know, yeah. you know, rambling Jack Elliott was a big guy, even though I I, I am a fan of, of his work, but. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I won't deny how much, you know, I, I listened to Dylan. And, I mean, but of course, that, that was, you know, that's the launching point. And we, you know, I played straight harp. And, you know, it wasn't so much on Go Man Go, but most of my other song, songs I, I do like flat picking and, mm-hmm. you know, picking and strumming, which is a lot of what he had done and a lot of what Woody Guthrie had done. <laughs> it's like a, that was part of a tradition. But, um, you know, and then there was the writing. So the the, the writing was uh, I had a lot of other influences, but um, those were probably like the most the easiest to recognize. And also, the, the you know the the baby boomer folkies just didn't they they had no idea what any of the other influences were. Like they wouldn't recognize those influences if they had hit them over the head with a you know with a with an anvil. So. <laughs> It was, uh, you know, so that, that part was really aggravating and annoying. And it was also, um, 
it just went along with that whole response was because I mentioned before about some there were some uh, critics were just they were be outright angered by <laughs> by us you know because they were very protective of their icons and uh, you know they didn't want to they didn't want anyone messing with their history their place in history so by association you know you know Bob Dylan's the greatest rock icon of all time you're the Bob Dylan fan you know that came of age then you're, you're like the greatest fan of all time. So, you know, so much better than, you know, the, or anything else that happened after. I mean, I, I think, I think a lot of the problems we go through as a country right now have a lot to do with that too, because the, um, you know, that generation did not just did not make room for anything that did not flatter them. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, my, my sound is what it is and what, or what it was. And, and, uh, I, you know, and it's certainly grown from there. And it's like, yeah, that was, you know, I mean, I took the same journey Bob Dylan took, you know, he, I mean, oh, it's funny because Bob Dylan pretty much was Woody Guthrie when he started out, you know, mm-hmm. he wore the same clothes, played the same things the same way. And then what's also funny is when, when Beck came to the, you know, the East Village, or, you know, when I first met him, that's all he did was play Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> and nobody really, you know, uh, he wasn't still doing that when he got signed, you know, when his, his uh, later stuff came out. But I remember seeing him on Saturday Night Live, and the set was, like, right off the album cover of Blonde on Blonde. And I'm like, nobody said a word about that, you know? It's like, it's also different when you're on a major label. I think For it's sure, like, well, yeah. you know, you know, if uh, SSC stops sending a critic their free records, uh, they might not care so much. But if, you know, if... Uh, you know, Warner Brothers stops sending them free stuff, then that if Warner Brothers cuts them off, then that's you know, they they don't want to have to deal with that. So it's like you, you're when you put yourself out there on a label like SSD and you're trying to compete with the major label artists, you um, you know you're you're a punching bag and you're a target. So I, I think a lot of it also had to do with that. It's like let's see what we can uh, you know they they a lot of critics. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a lot of the. Um, reviews that I've, I've seen, but I mean, there are a lot of critics out there with face, again, face with a new idea would first look very, very closely at what's wrong with it before they start looking at, you know, where this could be, you know, innovative. And again, you know, the, the first two times I saw Devo on uh, Saturday Night Live, I did not like them. <laughs> so, and then they became one of my favorite bands, but uh, so many that, you know, were the gatekeepers for our, you know, our, our pop music culture would not would would not make that kind of discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next song on here is Talkin' Train Blues. And now the cover, I love the cover photo. It has you in front of a, a subway train. Did you did you do a lot of busking on subway platforms? Actually I not so much. Like I did uh when we were the Folk Brothers, we we did a lot of busking. Just uh and, but mostly not so much on a train, but mostly just to, you know, we pick our targets because we, we didn't like Roger was doing it as income. I would just do it as, you know, a promotion, you know? So sometimes if I thought a particular spot would be really good, um, I used to do it outside of the city at some places like touristy spots and stuff. And, uh, there's like, I went to school at Stony Brook and there was a, uh, a town next week called Port Jefferson where a ferry comes in and they have this whole thing called Chandler Square and, and uh, I would set up there and, and, and do really well. And 
and you know other places like that if i saw something was like a, a great chance to make a few bucks really quickly but i wasn't like like committed or dedicated to the whole busking culture i was like uh you know it was more uh for us it was just more of a way to like annoy you know the, the established acts and the established uh venues Okay, uh, the next one's Corporation Plow. That, of course, we've got that signature bass tone that that Brian has starting it off. And to me, the the song kind of talks about. Correct me if I'm wrong. Automation and kind of the corporate control of agriculture. Yeah, you know that that's it in a nutshell. I mean, it's it's an automation. It's an issue that you have to deal with in every industry, but also at that time. Uh, I think there was also, there was an economic downturn and there was, in, in certain parts of the country, there, there was, I think, nothing to compare today, but there was drought and it was a really hard time for uh, for family farmers. And it's also something that was going on in every just about every industry, but this whole consolidation, I mean, it's, it's what was going on in the music industry. So, um, you know, what they did to farming in America was no different what they did to music production. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you showed up in New York one year, and, and there's uh, maybe like 20 major labels. And then, you know, by the time I got signed to SST, there was probably like maybe a dozen. And uh, by the time I started Patty on the Railway, there was like three. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the, the three, I still haven't figured out, but they're somehow related, too. Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't study the corporate structure, but it's really, you know, and like... I'm, I have very little patience for these conspiracy theory people and stuff, but I understand where it comes from because, you you know, unless you make this your life's work, you're never going to know the actual connection. And it's it, none of it's really, you know, hidden information. You know, most of it, if you have the time, you can go through corporate records, but, you know, yeah. they, you know, you can't hire a staff to do that for you. And it's, um, it's there, you know, and it's, I'm, it's, I'm pretty sure like Hershey's and General Electric and, Kellogg's pretty much owned everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, I know, and, and uh, you know, they all just seem so uh, innocuous when you're, uh, you know, in their packaging and their their marketing. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, actually, there's um, there's a guy named Sander Hicks who uh, he had a, a band for a, a while, but he eventually, but he's also a writer and a playwright, and uh, um, but he he had a uh, Oh, he wrote a play called Shitballs, and it was about this, you know, this mega corporation figures out how they're going to package crap, human crap, and, and sell it to people so, for consumption. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's, I mean, to, to us, that's, that's exactly what happened with music. It's like, wow, it's, it's, it's pretty much crap now. It's, there's, there are moments, you know, but it's like, those, those are freak accidents. And, uh, and that, that's what was going on with definitely with the, the farm industry, the agricultural industry at the time. And it's like, yeah, you know, so my family has been farming this land for a hundred years and now like they decided they wanted it. You know, this is, and it's really the same that they decided with, with artists. It's, it's like, no, we don't want to have to keep up with all these really talented people competing with each other and, and each week having to find the next new big thing. We're just going to, eliminate you guys and to tell people what they're going to, who they're going to buy from. And they did the same thing with agriculture. Red blues kind of reminded me a little bit thematically anyways of, of Roger Manning's lefty rhetoric blues. 
Yeah, yeah. Kind of you know, uh, some irony, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but also there was a lot of uh, Phil Lux used to do stuff like that all the time too. And, uh, mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, uh, one of the things I loved about Phil Lux that he could be really funny. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's like, and, and he did talk and blues a lot too. So, and then Woody Guthrie too. His, most of his talk and blues were, were there's usually yeah. some humor in him. So I feel like a domino um, or something you say. In yeah, that yeah. So. Um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so it was, well, actually, I'm, I'm sorry. Talking Blues was the, the Talking Train Blues, but Red Blues was, it was kind of along the same vein where it's just, it was, you know, it was poking fun at our, our foreign policy. And, and you know, it, it was, you know, it, to, to most of us, you know, it, you know, and to even Jimmy Carter, before, while he was president, it's like it was so obvious that this needed to change. And then Ronald Reagan uh, packages it in a whole different way, not to mention that, you know, also set up his own little private army. But, um, yeah, and, and also, this is one of, one of the, the two times I, I was lucky enough to be, meet Pete Seeger was um, I was still somewhat associated with the folky scene, and there was this, like, folk conference songwriters weekend or something, and... Uh, I, uh, you know, and he said, yeah, it's like, that's one of the mistakes all these people make, you know, all these people here is like, they don't, you know, they have, they have no sense of humor, you know, so like they don't, you got to do whatever you can to, to it's all about the audience, all about who's going to be hearing the song. So you got to engage them and bring them in. So, uh, one of the first songs I wrote after I met him was a song called, um, 19 miles from Sherman town because I was still trying to put a nuclear reactor on Long Island. And it was, uh, I actually used the, the melody of a Christy Moore song called 90 miles from Dublin town, which was about the political prisoners in, in Northern Ireland. So I did that. And it was, um, it, it was on the fast folk compilation, which was another West village, uh, project. And, uh, it, it was, it was played like from what I heard, it was played like constantly on, on the, um, the Stony Brook radio station. And then, and then when I was, uh, you know, sometime before I did the recording with SSD, I, I did red blues. It, was, uh, uh, it seemed, it seemed like the thing to do. I pity the poor British soldier who, what, or who is the, you know, was the inspiration behind that song? Oh, actually, um, well, when I was in college, I, uh, myself and some of my, uh, fellow Irish American students started an Irish club, an Irish student organization. And, you know, it was, it was cultural and it was definitely social, you know, but was, back then this was right in the, in the, in the peak of, of all the trouble that was going on in Northern Ireland. So we became part of the pipeline for bringing people over to, uh, on speaking tours. Some of them, they, they snuck into the country, you know, but some of them had, had escaped from jail and, you know, from uh, Long Cash or, or from the maze. But one, shortly after the hunger strike, when uh, Bobby Sands and nine other uh, protesters died on hunger strike, um, his brother Sean came over. And Sean was also a musician, and uh, he just uh, bonded with all of us. So uh, he was like, because he, he was just, you know, around our age, you know, and he was used to, like, going to all these places and playing in bars with, like, you know, you know, and much older crowds and staying at people's houses, you know, so now he's staying in a dorm. It's just, you know, the, 
the events that he came over for were very serious. But when he was staying uh, on campus with us, we just had like a great old time. But one night we go into uh, there. We used to have bars on campus, and one was the Graduate Student Lounge. And he takes out his guitar and he's playing this song about about the exact same thing. A um, a guy who who an IRA guy who shoots a British soldier, and he's he's like telling his mother that you know what he did. And I you know I I hadn't heard that song again, and I wasn't really sure what you know, but so. Part of it is I might if I had found that song I might not have written I pity the poor British soldier but uh, I, you know, but I, I I thought the sentiment and and just the story was so important because one of the things I, I later discovered was that it's just the, the people involved in that conflict was so young you know it was shocking uh, the British soldiers were just they they were like usually like you know late teens early twenties you know and uh, but that that's all another conversation yeah. but um, so. He he was really the inspiration for writing that song and another song he he played that night, which is right around the time I started uh, discovering punk, was uh, Rockaway Beach. So oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, because him and his friends back in Belfast were all into punk rock too. So okay, uh, Heroes of Tomorrow. Now we've talked a little bit about you know train unions unionism. Uh, I love the nod to Joe Hill and Eugene Debs and Phil Oaks. Uh, let's talk about your union activism and, you know, kind of, it's a great time to be part of a union or forming a union, kind of a, a resurgence a little bit in the U.S. and Canada. Well, it, it definitely is. But, you know, I think, you know, a lot of what happened in, in COVID had, you know, for, and also just because the economy was doing so great that workers had a little bit of leverage on their own. The disappointing thing is that this wasn't really driven by the labor establishment. You know, it's so much of it is driven by, you know, and in, in most cases, like younger workers that are just fed up. Yeah. And a lot of them don't have such a positive view of, of you know, the labor establishment. And, you know, I'm, from my own experiences, I, I understand why. Because yeah. I've, I've had, a, 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 you know, aside from a lot of gratifying and, and uh, rewarding work, it was just dealing with uh, the labor establishment. It was just a nightmare. The good thing is that they're figuring it out for themselves because it's it's not rocket science. But I do, it is frustrating at times because sometimes I see them making mistakes that you know formal training would have prevented. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that one either the labor establishment wakes up. I I really wouldn't bank on that. Um, but the other is that yeah, this is just um, you know because a lot a lot of them are are organizing, but they're kind of shying away from the union model because they just the word union scares them mm -hmm. and you know I, I was reading this one article about one of the uh, I, I think it was one of the the Starbucks um, organizing drives but they're saying you know they they couldn't really say describe it as a union to the people they're organizing so they're, it's it's more like an advocacy and, and a, um, you know a collective action movement mm -hmm. but eventually you need that contract or you're just going to be organizing forever. Yeah, that's so, the hard part, getting that first contract, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as far as my own experience goes, I was, um, you know, what happened, I was I was signed, after SST, I got signed to this label called Goldcastle Records, which was run by this guy, Danny Goldberg, who was um, one of the most powerful people in, in the music industry. And he, uh, he, his main thing was his management company. He managed... Uh, 
uh, Nirvana. He managed uh, Bonnie Raitt. He managed, I think, Joe Baez, Bruce Cole, you know, like everybody. And, you know, it would have been a perfect thing for us, for him to manage us and get us onto major labels. But he started his own little folky label. And I got, well, first, I eventually got signed by the label. But first he, you know, he dragged me through negotiations for over two years. Which you know, when when you're hot in the music industry, that's that's fleeting. Mm-hmm. So you know, he knows that I know that, and and he's trying to leverage my my publishing from me. He wants all the rights to all my songs forever, you know, and without giving me anything additional. So finally, I settled for half half ownership, also with the stipulation that if his publishing company or record label goes out of business, the you know he owns nothing. So. So I own all my songs now, but, you know, or I should say Rambling Woody Zimmerman. <laughs> so and what happened was we, we finally recorded. It was, it was produced by a, um, Tom Goodkind, who's another guy that came out of that scene. And he was you know one of the founders of Washington Squares. Mm-hmm. So he had recorded for that label as well. So he produced that album and he was, he was like a, a top-notch producer. Like he re- researched everything. So... We, we finally, after getting dragged through these negotiations and, um, you know, after no one in the music industry talking to me anymore because they know that I, you know, Danny had marked me, uh, we signed a contract. Two weeks later, we have an album in the can. And oh, two weeks later after that, I'm, I'm talking to their office like, uh, yeah, we, we have no more money. We're going out of business. Mm. And, uh, and Danny Goldberg goes on to be vice president of Atlantic Records. So... Mm. Is this record uh, called New City? Yeah, that was New City. Has that ever been released in any way? Yeah, well, I I, I didn't widely distribute it, but I pressed records because I as one of the records I used to start my label called Mugsy Records, mm-hmm. and um, in the beginning, the uh, another artist from the anti folk scene called Mike Rimbaud had, had gone through the same thing with um, mm-hmm. a label in Paris. So he had an album all set to go. So we both pressed it and uh, released it on the monkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still. It's amazing how many people from that scene I'm still tight with. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's just uh, you know, it's like the you know, it was like the cast of Greece or something. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, I'm just I'm either like still really tight with those people or just like really, you know, just. We just love running into each other, and and, uh, and we you know we keep in touch. So, but um, so the, here's the other album to come out on Mostly Records in the beginning, and then uh, uh, I did a record with another um, around the time I was doing Patty on the Railway. Uh, we it was a band called the Ruffians in New York, and they they kind of had like I thought they had a real anti folk attitude, so we we released them on Mostly Records as well. Still, I haven't released, I never really officially released the Patty on the Railway stuff yet, but I think either if um, I don't get someone else to release it right away, I'll probably do it under that, which is, it's a lot easier now that you don't have to press thousands of CDs. Right, so. yeah. mm-hmm. The song Holloway Joe, obviously you've talked a lot about, you know, your your Irish heritage and stuff. Is this a song like that you would have known from a very young age? Yeah, well, you know, I got it. The, the Clancy Brothers did it. You know, it was a big, and I, I heard it on, a, I think it was a live at Carnegie Hall album. So uh, that that's like if you got a, if you listen to one Clancy Brothers record, listen to that one. 
because that really captures the whole spirit of what they were all about. Cause, and it's also kind of like the attitude that I you know, really drove me or drew me to the anti-folk because it was like the Clancy, a Clancy Brothers gig was like a party, you know, and, and at that time when we were all just, you know, just so disenchanted with rock, it was, it was because, you know, the artists were all these posers looking down on the audience, you know, and, and, you know, we're all better than you. And it's like the Clancy Brothers is just, you're all invited to our party, you know, and they would make you sing too. So, um, Holloway Joe is really useful because if you're, you know, either you're playing in a noisy bar or you're, you're the opening act for like a hardcore band or something. And like, you got to do something to get attention right away. So you can't just, uh, walk out, start strumming a folky ballad. Nobody knows who the hell you are. Mm-hmm. So I, I, a lot of times I'd open with that song and that, you know, and I, and I sped it up a little too. So it, we could, uh, the punk audiences can relate to it. And then sometimes, like, if, uh, if I was playing in a smaller place, I wouldn't even do it from stage. I would, like, stand on a table in the middle of the floor or stand on the bar or something. <laughs> so I, I always got... It was it was so great for getting people's attention. I was going to say, say yeah, that'll, that'll shut, ever, that'll yeah, shut the like room this, up real quick. <laughs> this, this is what I do, all yeah. right? Now sit down and shut up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's pretty tough to ignore, someone standing on a table... Yeah. Belting that out. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'm glad you recorded it live for that reason. That totally makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Last dance. The lyrics to this one are kind of abstract. I'm, you know, I'm curious what what it's about or, or who it's about, and uh, love the style of finger picking on this song too. A little bit different yeah, from think, from some of the other guitar playing on the record. I, I think that's the only song I do in a detuning. You know, mm-hmm. it's. I don't even know if it's really completely detuning. It's just I. I tune the top string down to a D and it gives it that even lower, even lower note. And, uh, it really was about, uh, you know, the, the cold, cold war was still living under the threat of, you know, atomic annihilation. So, you know, I remember just lying in bed one morning, like kind of half waking up and just hearing this jet go by, you know, and it's like, yeah, that, anytime you hear that, it could be the one, you know, it could be something else. And, you know, that's, that was always in the back of everyone's mind for like a long time. Yeah. You know, I kind of turned that into reflection on, you know what, you know, maybe, maybe it's time to do something, you know? Mm-hmm. So there, there's no second chance, you know, you got to do something now or, you know, and, and on the flip side of that too, it's just like, well, you got to live your life. You got to do what you, what you, gotta, you know, if you got to go, man, go, or, uh, you, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yep. Okay. California blues. Here's that, the bluegrass flat picking for sure. Oh yeah. That actually, I, I think the real inspiration for that was, was Phil Oaks talking train blues. You know, he had this, I mean, talking plane blues, talking train blues was mine. <laughs> he had talking, talking airplane blues. So, so, uh, you know, yeah, he had this one line is, uh, nothing ever happens to planes at all, trains at all. The only one accident he could recall was a plane crashed into it. So, <laughs> uh, I was looking to do something like that. And it just seemed I was living at, in LA. I was miserable. I was actually, there was a time in LA where I actually took the bus to work, you know, and, and transferred to get to work. And I was just like, I was not into the whole driving commute thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, but so much else of, of just life in, in L.A. that evolves around having a car. You know, it's, 
Yeah. Oh, and it was another song Phillips did, My Kingdom for a Car. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there's probably a little bit of Phillips in just about everything I write because it's just his, his wit, you know, and his art, you know, his, uh, uh, his dry humor. It was, it was just always so prevalent. So, yeah, but it was like, wow. I, I just sometimes, you know, when I was through being enraged, I would just be. You know, I just had to like laugh at it, like, "What? This is so useless." I mean, I knew I would not be living in LA forever, but what? What about the rest of these people? What are they? What are they going to do? Are they going to spend this much time the rest of their lives doing this? So I, I, I you know, as soon as I could, I hightailed it back to New York. Yeah. Uh, Marching off to Gaul. Tell me about that song. What? What inspired the lyrics to that track? Oh well, it was, uh, you know, it was when those American GIs got blown up in Lebanon, uh, I was in, uh, also I was in school still and I was taking Latin. So, you know, we never actually studied, uh, you know, Julius Caesar's biography, but you know, whenever you think of Latin, you think of that line, you know, all the Gaul is divided into three parts. And I can remember the morning that happened, my, you know, my, my mom was just so upset. I mean, we didn't have any kids in the military then, but, uh, we would later on, you know, people really care about, uh, you know, our, our, people serving wherever they are, you know, and it's, uh, when you lose so many at once, you know, it's, it really has an effect. And then the fact that, you know, our whole policy in the Middle East for so long was, you know, like so many of all our policies are driven, are corporate driven. And, you know, you know, you can think, why, why did this happen? For the same thing that drove British imperialism, you know, for, for, uh, you know, millennia. So, you know, that, that was kind of the inspiration of that. Okay, Nevermore. Perfect way to end the record. I'm assuming it's about a real person. Oh, yeah. So that, that would be Cindy Lee. Yeah, I assume uh, yeah, so. Cause, yeah, because uh, much of our romance was a long-distance romance. So, you know, so I, I think it was during one of those times. Uh, oh, and actually... But I was remembering, like, that first night that I met her in front of Folk City, it's like the way I talked about the sunlight then, and the way the sun was coming in, that late afternoon, early evening sun, and the way, you know, she's got these piercing blue eyes and blonde hair. And, like, uh, you know, my memory of the first time I saw her is just so vivid, you know. Yeah. And she was wearing, like, a gingham dress and, and army boots, you know. So, you know, so uh, um, then in one of the, you know, one of these prolonged periods of separation and, uh, you know, I'm thinking of how to put this into a song and, and, you know, and it's also just the kind of song that was really so prevalent in like, uh, American folk music and like, uh, the Appalachian kind of folk music, you know, so, or that kind of imagery. So it was, so it was real life plus like the, the real, the real deep folk root influences. Yeah. Some of the, the stuff on the back of this record now that I've talked to you, I, th- I think I know the answers to some of them, but you know, it's, it's a great piece that kind of incorporates a bunch of the lyrics and it has some interesting references. Uh, it mentions the folk brothers. So I know what that is now. That's you and Lash, yeah. uh, a club called no say no. I, I'm assuming that's the, the club on, on St. Mark's. No, that was, um, it was on Forsyth street. Hmm. So, Oh no, no, it was on Rivington right off of Forsyth. So there was this art gallery and then in the basement, there, you know, they, they would do performances and it was great. They had a bar and they had a refrigerator and they sold cans, cans and bottles of beer. Out of you know, and another one of the totally illicit things that went on and their spotlight was 
the girl working at the bar would hold up a flashlight, you know, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the cement, you know, flooring only went halfway back and the rest of it where we play was just dirt, exposed dirt, you know, <laughs> and you had to get down to it through the cellar entrance. So it's like the deepest, lowest Lower East Side and you're, you know, kind of doing like a, a, a limbo thing to get into the, the club. So me and Latch, oh, and actually that particular gig was St. Patrick's Day and I had a big party here in my flat and uh, I was like, I told my brother, oh, I got to go. We, uh, you know, me and Latch have a gig and then I, you know, we go on stage and I see my brother at the gig and I'm like, well, who's at the house? Like, oh, no, there's a lot of people there, <laughs> but not me. <laughs> so we did the gig and we came back and the party was still going on. But so we, we we play this gig and like we the folk brothers would be very physical too like we would bump into each other and sometimes roll you know play on our backs and and uh, you know so it was a great gig it was a lot of fun and we did it because of the size of the place and acoustics we do without any any sound you know any amplification at all and it worked and it was great and then the band after this is like this hardcore band that has like six foot marshall stacks you know turned up all the way you know but. It's that kind of dichotomy you would get all the time on on the Lower East Side, right? But that that was the 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 one that inspired that part of it. Yeah, so I think uh, I don't know if it was that gig or one a similar gig, but it was like one of the one of the first nights after uh, one of the earlier meetings with Cindy Lee. You know, we were just talking about you know all the stuff that influenced the folk scene, the anti-folk scene, and and. Uh, and then uh, she she did that. She wrote Go Man Go on uh, a piece of masking tape and stuck it on my guitar. And it was like this real beatnik kind of writing, too. And, and actually, I am looking at that guitar right now. <laughs> so it's um, it's a little beat up because I got, you know, as, uh, you know, ter- more turmoil started taking over the neighborhood, uh, there was... Uh, one of, one of the, the multiple times, like, oh, actually, no, it was after I, I had... I moved out of this apartment briefly and I got gentrified out to, to Brooklyn. And on my way in, I got jumped by a bunch of skinheads and uh, they smashed the guitar over over the curb. Oh, wow. But uh, I managed to, like, dive in and hip-check one of them and grab my guitar and run down to the subway station. Wow. And then somebody on the other platform yells over and is like, yeah, I, I saw them. Call me if you want to witness. <laughs> And I went back, and I had the cops drive by, and I had the kids arrested, and I got the uh, uh, the new guitar guild that I use now because mm-hmm. of that. But mm-hmm. I still have that guitar hanging in my room right now. And then after that incident, though, I stuck another thing on it that said, uh, you know, Woody Guthrie had that sticker that said, this machine killed fascists. Right. So I put one that said, fascists killed this machine. <laughs> That's pretty great. This, uh, you know, this piece on the back mentions Kerouac and On the Road. I'm, I'm assuming that was a huge ins- inspiration as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I didn't read On the Road until after I was like, uh, one, one of my teachers in college had said, you know, this is one of the books you have to read. You know, he said, reading is like, you know, uh, being a writer is all about reading. So, you know, you got to read the best guys, the people who push the envelope. And, you know, I, I read, uh, I read, on the road and like, like all of us, but for so many of, uh, uh successive generations, it's, it's just like transformative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and because of the way 
our scene was and the way the, you know, we, we had a home on the Lower East Side and, and we were all comfortable there, but because of the reality of the industry, you had a, you couldn't stay there forever. You had to move sometime, you know, and then also we would, we would draw people from other places and then there was other scenes going on in other places. So there, there was always this constant movement. And then, uh, so even before, like we got signed and we were out touring, we were just, we'd be checking out all these other places looking for kindred spirits and we always found some. So, and then also, like I said before, when I, I had this long distance relationship, so I, I was going back and forth all the time. So, um, I wasn't always driving back and forth. That, that was really more later after the album came out, but you know, taking the Greyhound bus tours and, uh, I mean, you never realize how big this country is until you do it by <laughs> Greyhound bus. So, yeah, back um, and forth, like a, like this country was a giant pinball machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. That's, that's what that it says. <laughs> I love this story on the back. You know, you're in California. Roger sends you a tape, you know, with his song, Number 14 Blues, that name, yeah. name checks you and and uh, makes you want to go back to New York. And, and suddenly you're back at Cafe Bustello. Yeah, yeah. So there was a... Uh, it didn't exist when I had left New York, but then it was just one of those places that was, you know, that would open all the time. And also it's just another example of how, you know, our, our, uh, our scene was like multidiscipline. And so it was a performance artist named Heather Woodbury and she opened this, uh, you know, saved up her money, opened a storefront and the, uh, the storefront before that was a bodega that sold Cafe Bustello. So she just left the sign up and that was the name of the cafe. <laughs> and uh, and that was actually the first time I ever saw John S. Hall. It was like, I, mm. I'd just gotten back from LA and I'm like, John S. Hall goes up on stage and does take stuff from work. I'm like, uh, I am back. You know? <laughs> I am home. Yeah. <laughs> this album is dedicated to Keith Wood and those that still miss him. Yeah. Um, Actually, he was, um, I think originally he was, he was part of the, the rat, that Rockland County scene that came down with uh, my friend Steve and Latch. And uh, he actually lived at the fort for a while with, mm. with Latch. Because mm-hmm. uh, had, they had like a small living quarters, which you're not supposed to do in a commercial space. And, uh, you know, and then the rest was, you know, the, the, the big open space where... Uh, you know, once once a week they clear everything out, and uh, it would be the performance space. So, like the stage, I think was actually like a living area the rest of the week, and then uh, and then it was a stage. And then when when I had like moved out to LA, like for real, like you know, I got an apartment and everything. Um, I, I was like totally lost. I was like a fish out of water. I was like, oh, I, <laughs> and then I just discovered that. My friend Steve and and had, had moved out there, um, you know, maybe, maybe a few months before, and and also Keith, and uh, and they lived, they were within walking distance of my house. I'm like, oh, this is just too good. So we we'd get a bunch of tall boys and we'd sit out in front of his apartment complex, just bitching about LA and how much we thought it sucked, and uh, and uh, Keith and. Uh, Steve at the time were all into motorcycles, so um, Steve uh, Keith got killed in a motorcycle mm-hmm. accident, like maybe a few months after I had moved back to New York. Oh, that's too so bad. It was really, really sudden and, and tragic, and it's just you know, it's still uh, we, 
you still miss him, you know. Mm-hmm. That's too bad. You mentioned your guild that you're that's sitting in your, you know, sitting across from you right now. Are you still? Do you still play out? Still writing music? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm still writing. Um, I'm still working on stuff. Like maybe not with the same, uh, you know, output uh, level of output that I had before. But I'm also, I'm also just figuring out what what to do with it too. So. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of songs that I never recorded, which um, I'm thinking instead of just going in and doing an album, like having all people I like record them. So uh-huh, yeah. it would be a, like a compilation of, of really my favorite people doing my songs. <laughs> and, and then uh, also, uh, I mean, it's in a very, very early stages, but I'm working on a, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a musical or an operetta, but, um, you know, I, I wrote a song based on a book that a friend of mine had written called um, All Souls. And uh, it's about growing up in Southie in Boston during the whole period of turmoil and the busing riots and uh, and and Whitey Bulger, you know, uh, you know, neighborhood being inundated with Whitey Bulger's drugs and his control of the neighborhood and all that. And uh, uh, my friend had lost, uh, you know, multiple siblings, you know, died, and um, one of his his sister was thrown off a roof and you know, that was just, it was so commonplace. Like right now you just hear about the, the tidal wave of violence. It was kind of like that. So, uh, my friend ended up becoming a social worker and then he wrote this memoir and he's written a couple since, but I wrote a song based on that and, and he, he really liked it. He liked it so much. He sent it to his mother. And then I, I was thinking, well, you know, this really, uh, like a, a musical, some sort of theatrical performance would be really, you know, this this would be a great vehicle to do tell this story musically. So um, I'm I'm working on that now. Oh, that's cool. I'm also just writing a lot of prose too. So oh yeah, uh, like uh, essays and maybe some poetry and some stuff that's kind of in between an essay and a poem. So so I'm like um, I'm writing a lot. I'm just not writing music as much as I was. Well, Kirk, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate you inviting me. This is a, this is a great project you're doing. All right. Like I said, very cool to have Kirk on the show. Thanks so much. Didn't get into whether the bass, David's bass amp in the Das Damen Noon Daylight video saying Go Man Go is a direct link, but I'm still going to think it's a direct link <laughs> To Kirk Kelly, because every time I watch that Das Damen video and I see Go Man Go spray painted on his bass amp, I'm like, these are a bunch of New York folks. How the hell is that not connected, right? Yeah. Some cool stuff. The Clancy Brothers, he mentions them a few times as an influence, and you can totally hear it. Oh, yeah. And they were definitely an influence on Dylan, too. Um, You sent me a pic this week. I didn't know you were a fan, Ryan. You sent me a pic of a giant stack of Clancy (laughs) Brothers records. (laughs) Well, I don't have a giant stack, but I definitely have in person at Carnegie Hall. Yeah, that's the one he mentions, hey? Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I definitely have this one, um, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem. That's how they're usually noted. Tommy Makem is uh, along with the Clancy Brothers. This one has got um, a song that we'll talk about later here, Holloway Joe. Different version, like um, much slower. But um, yeah, so... 
the Clancy Brothers. Why the hell do I have Clancy Brothers records? And I don't know really anything about folk music. Um, and check out this one too. This one's called A Live Nightclub Performance. And then it says in, in a green kind of symbol on it, like almost like a, a little seal of approval. It says hearty and hellish. <laughs> and the Clancy Brothers are always wearing these cable knit sweaters and they look like they could just kick your ass, man. They they look so badass on these covers. But anyways, why do I have the Clancy Brothers? Kind of three reasons. So first of all, I used to go to uh, St. John's, Newfoundland a lot. And there's a huge Irish culture there. And the Clancy Brothers are everywhere. So that's really kind of how I learned about them. I also kind of learned a bit about them very, very indirectly through the band The Brandos. Uh, I don't know if you know that band, the Brandos and Dave Kincaid, uh, definitely, um, is very involved in, uh, or at least was anyways in Irish folk songs, especially like American civil war, Irish folk songs. He actually released two albums of that. And in fact, like on their in exile album, it's a live album by the Brandos. Mm -hmm. He starts off a song by singing an Irish folk song kind of solo in the same way that Kirk does on this record. So when I heard this, and and this is the first time I've ever heard Kirk's record this week. Loved yeah. it. First time I'm in. Uh, but when I heard it, I was like, oh, that's just like David Kincaid off the live Brando's album when he's singing Holloway Joe. And then the third reason I, I know the Clancy brothers is actually because of my father-in-law who um, had a big box of old records that he gave away, handed them down to me. And I kept these uh, Clancy Brothers records because I knew about them kind of from being in St. John's, Newfoundland. And I had no idea I was going to like make the connection uh, with this episode coming up. So very, very cool. Yeah, well, I you hit me to the Brandos and that totally makes sense. I, I don't have, you know, all I have is Gunfire at Midnight and the other one that you, you see around, but they're both great. Can't, yeah. re can't remember the other kind of main one, but uh, yeah, if you're looking for some teary Irish ballads, sea shanties, and rebel drinking songs, look no further <laughs> than the Clancy Brothers. <laughs> and some body tunes, the yeah. odd body tune, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Kirk mentioned, mentions Latch's first band, Proper ID. Um, they had a, a seven inch in 1981, and he also mentions a New York band called Borscht. With this guy Steve Viraja, which is hilarious because I know them from. I was when he said that I was like, "How do I know that band Borscht?" And I uh, remembered after the interview that uh, they're on Thrasher Skate Rock Volume Two, Blazing Wheels and Barking Trucks. <laughs> Early '80s hardcore with a bit of an oi bent. Hmm. Um, is it is it Borscht or Borscht? Borscht. Yeah. Okay. There we go. Don't forget the T, man. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, I didn't really grab the full connection he makes, but he tied those bands, Borscht and uh, Proper ID, to Linda Trudnik, who was a receptionist at SST. I know her thanks to our pal, the spaceman, Michael Whitaker, mm. uh, who was at the time of his unfortunate passing, working on a blog about women in the scene, and she was uh, one that he wrote about. Unfortunately, I went digging around for the blog and it, it isn't up anymore, uh, which is really too bad because it was, it was really great. But I remember reading about Linda and she had a fairly tough life and she's unfortunately passed away. Got me thinking about that when he, when he mentioned Linda's name, you know, I was thinking more afterwards talking about, you know, why SST didn't do more anti-folk records. I could totally see Gin 
starting a new SST offshoot label just to document a scene like this. Yeah, or it could have definitely been a focus of New Alliance. Yeah, well, they New Alliance practically did go in this direction. If you, yeah, you know, if you consider the all the spoken word releases they did, exactly. Yep. Uh, he mentions Black Forty Seven. There's a band I completely forgot about. New York Celtic rock band. I remember seeing them on Letterman actually in the early '90s, and I don't think I've ever heard their name come up since. Hmm. I'm gonna check. How did they? How did they get on Letterman? Yeah, Were they like on a major for a second? Yeah, I, I'm not too sure if I'm being honest, but I'm gonna check into it. I'm not opposed to some Celtic rock. I mean, I love the Pogues, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and you know, being Canadian, I've seen the Real Mackenzies about a thousand times. Uh, I could even get into some flogging Molly if the if the mood struck me. And I, I even once saw the Dropkick Murphys play, but I was actually there to see the Dwarves who were opening up. So, <laughs> I think that might have been the show I was at. <laughs> Don't forget about uh, the Irish Rovers. Oh, yeah. yeah. Come on, man. Oh, That's like... My dad was always blasting the Irish Rovers when I was growing up. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. pretty hard to grow up in Canada <laughs> in the 70s and 80s and not have the Irish Rovers record around the house. Yeah. Actually, the new Real Mackenzies that's coming out I saw is all like sea shanties. Okay. Uh, Gold Castle Records. Interesting, you know, story he told about his time signed to that label. Danny Goldberg and Julian Schlossberg. They have a number of mainstream folk acts signed or did, I guess. It's not an active label anymore. Like Joan Baez and Peter, Paul and Mary, but also the group The Washington Squares who were con considered part of the anti-folk scene. Let's get into this record, Ryan. Yeah. History lesson, part two. So it came out on, in 1988 on CD, LP, and cassette. Engineered by Todd Rush. He also worked on Victor DiLorenzo's debut, Peter Corey Sent Me, from around this time. Uh, and he and Victor also played in the short-lived group Echo Tour, along with John Cruth, actually, and others from the, the Femmes Orbit. Uh, Echo Tour released a, an album in 1988 called Decorated Life, you can see a video they made up on YouTube for the title track. It's pretty cool. I'll be hunting for that record. I, mm. I didn't really know too much. I, was, I found it when I was trying to find the name of Victor's studio because it's not listed on this, this record. So I was kind of digging around for some other stuff that was recorded around this time. I'm pretty sure it was, you know, just a home studio. Uh, as Kirk mentioned in the interview, it was really just you know, coincidental that this was recorded <laughs> when he stopped in Milwaukee while passing through town to talk to Brian about possibly pr producing his record. Yeah. And they kind of ended up spawn, you know, doing it spontaneously at the time. Can I hit you with some Spaceman about yeah. this record before we get into the tracks? Yeah. All right. So here we go. Out of the SST catalog, Kurt Kelly, Go Man Go. What the road is to the car and the track is to the train the acoustic guitar is to Kurt Kelly. Passionately crooned statements of the moment scratched forever in circular vinyl. Yes! Exclamation point. Go Man Go and Keep On Going includes I Pity the Poor British Soldier, Red Blues, Last Dance, and eight others. SST 223, LP cassette, and CD, as you said. Yeah, so what... I'm going to try and go through these tracks fairly quickly because we, we covered them off pretty good in the interview, but uh, mm. all songs written by Kirk, except for one. Uh, starts off with Go Man Go. This is, you know, 
that catchphrase is kind of the rally cry of the anti-folk scene. You hear it pop up on a lot of the songs from this era, including on Roger's record. Uh, just a killer opener and statement of intent. That aggressive playing style definitely leans more towards punk than folk. Uh, the chaotic harmonica playing style that's really synonymous with Bob Dylan. You know, not so much bending the notes like blues players do, but just flying up and down the harp, blowing in and out. Slurring it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, leave the past in the past. That's what that song is about. Yep. Uh, talking train blues. You got to start a train song by, you know, approximating the sound of a train. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Seems like the only train that runs on time is the one that I'm not on. Yeah. Definitely a song about the futility of complaining if the trains, <laughs> the train schedule doesn't fit your schedule. Yeah. More of that bluegrass flat picking style too. Mm -hmm. uh, Corporation Plow, no guitar on this track, just Brian Ritchie's bass and, and some harp. Obviously, you know, this would have been written on, on guitar. So, you know, this likely was adapted in the studio to be performed this way, I'm guessing. Yeah. Kind of sparse instrumentation works well with the, with those kind of melancholy lyrics. Very different vibe on this track from the others on the record. Yeah. Uh, Red Blues, lots of references here to Reagan-era Cold War politics like El Salvador, Iran-Contra, Pinochet, the CIA, Guatemala, and the United Fruit Growers, uh, you know, orchestrating coups along with the CIA. The whole song was just dripping with irony. Yeah, it's all about the comfort that people seek in the certainty of who they disagree with, even despite all the irrationality of it all. Uh, yep, track five, I Pity the Poor British Soldier, a song told from the perspective of an, of an IRA soldier, I believe, during the Troubles in, in Northern Ireland, kind of one soldier to another, like, I pity this man that I have in my sight, the one who will drop when my shot shakes the night, Through though deep in my heart, I know I am right. It's kind of, lyrically, it's got a cool first-person narrative style. Mm-hmm. That one was a highlight for me, as is the next one, Heroes of Tomorrow. This is one we talk about in the interview that's kind of about socialist labor leaders and artists like Eugene Debs, who ran for president like five times and helped organize the first railroad union, union in the U.S. He ended up being sentenced to 10 years in prison for speaking out, out against the First World War. Uh, coincidentally, this NPR podcast I listened to, sometimes called Through Line, just a few weeks ago did an episode that kind of told his story that, you know, it's really well done. Joe Hill, uh, his name sends shivers up the spines of scabs and bosses still. He was a labor organizer who wrote songs over 100 years ago that you'd still hear on any picket line today, uh, like There is Power in a Union or Casey Jones, The Union Scab. He was executed in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, and then Phil Oakes, was a protest singer and activist, primarily in the 60s counterculture, protesting the Vietnam War. Um, he was, you know, fighting for civil rights and things like that. Many famous protest songs like I Ain't Marching Anymore and Draft Dodger Rag. He unfortunately took his own life in 1976. For me, this is just such a great song. Obviously, I like the lyrical content, but the, the melody and Kirk's vocal are, are really great. He, he really does have an amazing voice, Kirk. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great tune. I knew you'd love it too, though, as a union man yourself. Yeah. Uh, and then we're flipping it over. We've got Holloway Joe, traditional, arranged by Kirk. 
as he says, recorded live at Harpo's. Not sure if he means the club in Detroit or, or a different Harpo's. I feel like maybe not the one in Detroit. That's a pretty big venue. Mm-hmm. So I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, but you should definitely check out the Clancy Brothers <laughs> version. Uh, yeah. They do it much slower, like you said, and it kind of really brings out the sea shanty vibe when they do it. Yeah, they uh, basically kind of thump on the body of an acoustic guitar that gives it the rhythm. Yeah. I tried to find out when this song dates back to, but it's so old that I don't think anybody really knows. Yeah. I just love everything about this, especially picturing Kirk climbing up on a table in the middle of some bar and like just interrupting all the talking by belting, belting this out to start off his set. There's a video of Kirk doing that on YouTube. Did you check that out? No. Is there? Oh yeah. Starting off a set that way. Oh, I got to see that. Yeah, that's killer. Yeah. I was just singing this song to myself all week, just walking around <laughs> singing it. Uh, track two on side two, Last Dance. Like Kirk mentions, this one's in drop detuning. Kind of a repeating, almost a drone. Uh, and, you know, once he told me it was it was about the, the threat of nuclear war or the, the, the fear of that threat, it, it really took on a new feel for me. Oh, yeah. Live every moment like it might be your last. That's the thread there for sure. Yeah. Track three, side two, California Blues. This one's, you know, more similar to Talk and Train Blues, kind of that country flat picking, a bit of a lighter vibe lyrically. Track four, Marching Off to Gaul. We cover this off pretty well in the interview and, and the story behind it. It's one of the more barnstorming tracks, like really furious picking. I like, like when he kind of brings it down towards the end. Yeah. I guarantee this was a, a hit live. Yeah, it's it's interesting, this track. He starts it off kind of simulating that uh, marching beat, you know, like a bunch of soldiers marching. And then, of course, at the beginning of Talking Train Blues, he simulated the sound of like a train whistle or something. So it's it's interesting to hear, you know, a solo acoustic guitar performer bring those elements just through the guitar to kind of bring more dynamics to make the, uh, the song, uh, resonate more with people. Very cool. Yeah. This one. Yeah. The, the way he plays this one kind of reminded me of that, that dude Hamill on trial Mm. a little bit. And then we end with nevermore. This, the song's lyrics speak for themselves, a song for his then girlfriend, Cindy Lee Berryhill, who was another of the, the bigger stars of the anti-folk scene. They must've been, you know, quite the power couple. Yeah. Her albums are really great. Also, like I've really only heard her first two there. They came out on Rhino 1987's who's going to save the world and 1989's naked movie star. Uh, Naked Movie Star has a track on it called Me, Steve, Kirk, and Keith. That's just a, a really moving moving snapshot of, of that time. Mm. This song's really great and just a perfect way to end the record. I, d- I was just loving listening listening to this all week, man. Kirk just has a phenomenal voice. I, I need to hear that follow-up, New City. Yeah, I couldn't find it. I can, I can see that you can buy a copy of it on amazon.com so so the u.s version of amazon.com but none of the sellers can ship to canada yeah it's the only place i could find it it's too bad it's not up on streaming or on youtube or something i'd love to hear it yeah 
that track I mentioned, me the, by Cindy Lee Ber- Berryhill, me, Steve, Kirk, and Keith. The Keith, I'm guessing, is is uh, Keith Wood, who Kirk dedicates this album to. We kind of cover that mm-hmm. off in the interview. I love that it says on the liner note, notes, A&R, Chuck Dukowski and Greg Ginn. Greg Ginn, yeah. <laughs> you don't see that on, on, the, on any of these records. So uh, yeah. cover photo by Patricia Lee, who we've, we've talked about in the Roger episode. She shot his cover and, and several other album covers as well. Just the perfect image though, right? Oh, of- yeah. Kirk in, uh, in his leather with the pins, guitar on the train platform. Perfect. Just looking cool as cool as fuck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just a badass. I wish I had a jacket like that still. Yeah. A tiny insert photo inside the package by Beth B., a New York City indie filmmaker, part of that no-wave scene. Uh, she actually did the that Lydia Lunch, The War Is Over documentary, Beth B. Ah, Pretty cool thank you list. The writing is so tiny, though. Yeah. <laughs> I like that he says, no management. Yeah. Yeah. There's that essay on the back we, we talked about in the interview as well that kind of incorporates some stories about the Folk Brothers and, and some of the song titles. Yeah, it's a great spiel. No dead wax on this one, Ryan. Yeah, I looked it up. I only have it on CD, but it's, uh, you know, we're at that era. We might be running out of dead wax. Yeah. Should we... Uh, Send it over to the ballot result? Sure, man. Ballot result. You know, I kind of love how, like in a weird way, how I don't really know folk music, like Phil Oaks and and uh, even Bob Dylan. Like, Bob Dylan's everywhere, right? Everyone yeah. knows about Bob Dylan. Everyone knows what he sounds like. But I don't really know Bob Dylan deeply. And so when I listen to this type of record or Rogers record, I'm kind of coming to it with, you know, a very untainted ear maybe because when I read reviews that say, Oh, this is a lot like Bob Dylan, or this is a lot like Phil Oaks that doesn't even cross my mind when I listen to this. It's like, I'm listening to it in, in all its originality at once. And it just, I don't know. I feel pretty lucky actually at the same time, I feel lucky really because I've been ignorant of this type of music. <laughs> so I don't know, double-edged sword, but I yeah. I feel like Kirk and Roger are total originals and great records and so cool that SST put them out. Yeah. Actually, the artist I saw Kirk get compared to the most is probably Billy Bragg. Mm. I'm guessing that's more because of the, you know, the socialism and the, the, the labor activ- activism more than anything else. Yeah. Well, I mean... A lot of the people that would compare, you know, Roger or Kirk to some of those really famous folk artists like Phil Oaks or, or Dylan, they're also being kind of lazy too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So my favorites were Go Man Go, which I'm pretty sure we're going to hear again on the SST acoustic compilation. It is. Yeah. It is. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I liked I Pity the Poor British Soldier, Heroes of Tomorrow, Holloway Joe, which is great, but I don't want to put it in there because I no. want to do a Kirk original. Yep. Uh, Last Dance and Nevermore. Oh, yeah. Those are a lot of my faves too, for sure. I feel like uh, Heroes of Tomorrow would be the one that I would probably get behind the most just because I know how much you know you love that one. And I, I'm kind of like, you know, maybe Kirk and Roger should be Heroes of Tomorrow too, right? Let's do it. Yeah. 
All right. Hey, thanks to Kirk Kelly for, for being on the show. Awesome. Just awesome. And you know what? Like maybe we can get some more accessible new Kirk Kelly music. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. We need like a band camp page with all that, uh, you know, an anti-folk band camp. Someone needs to like a curator needs to create like an anti-folk band camp page, all the unreleased, hard to find cassettes and all that stuff. Get it up there. Yeah. We need that. And like the PJD band camp, like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like stat <laughs> you know what it's really weird this is it's not a very good uh compare uh, connection it's not a very good connection probably but you know when i was listening i thought of pjd and, and the tjs this week um because when i'm listening to the song i pity the poor british soldier i couldn't help but think of the queen passing away recently and what that means in particular in canada and it's not a very good legacy. And then this week, of course, we've got Truth and Reconciliation Day. It's a national holiday here in Canada. And then I started thinking of Treacherous Jaywalkers and all of their political right. uh, leanings and, and lyrics. And it's like, you know, there is a total political, socialist, justice, folk, punk thread through so many SST releases and... Yeah, we need that stuff to be more accessible. It's true, man. And like, I can guarantee you if D. Boone would have lived, he would have made an anti-folk record. Guarantee yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. All right. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, we're going back to an old fave. I can't wait. It's SST 224, the HR album, Singing in the Heart. Right on. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.